Welcome everybody uh, to this session of the 10th Self-Self Forum on Sustainability. So we are very glad that we are having our very distinguished uh, speakers tonight. And um, I would like to introduce to you uh, the moderator uh, for today. Um, Ashley Damon is a fellow of the Global University for Sustainability. He's an Australian lawyer and editor of political economy and history works. He has been most helpful with uh, coordinating the series of lectures that formed the basis of the book, Destiny of Civilization. He has also helped with the editing of several of Professor Hudson's books. I also thank him uh, for coordinating this session, which we had started to prepare uh, quite a few weeks ago. So over to you, uh, Ashley. Uh, thank you, Kinchi, and hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to today's panel, Geopolitics and Political Economy, Looming War Against China. It will be my great privilege to introduce the three speakers for today, Radhika Desai, Pepe Escobar and Michael Hudson. Uh, Michael is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He is a founding member of Global University and he has been an honorary professor at Huazhong University in Wuhan and professor at the School of Marxist Studies at Peking University. He is the author of many books, including Superimperialism and Forgive Them Their Debts, Killing the Host, his latest, The Collapse of Antiquity, Greece and Rome as Civilization's Oligarchic Turning Point. And most topical for today, The Destiny of Civilization, Finance Capitalism, Industrial Capitalism or Socialism. And this is the English copy of it. Uh, in The Destiny of Civilization, Michael explains how the world has arrived at the point where today a financialized and deindustrialized United States is facing off against an industrialized mixed economy, socialist China, along with Russia and other allied nations in today's new Cold War and global fracturing. He shows that this conflict is a clash between different economic systems. US-centered neoliberal finance capitalism on the one hand, and socialism or mixed economy industrial capitalism leading to socialism on the other hand. The book was published in English last year, and I'm very pleased to announce that the Chinese edition has just been published. Uh, the Chinese publisher, People's Oriental Publisher, has provided a short video about this new edition uh, which we will play now. Hello, everyone. I am Yuan Yuan, the editor from People's Oriental Publisher House. I'm holding the Chinese version of The Destiny of Civilization by Michael Hassan. During the editing, we truly witnessed the theoretical foundation of the author. His ideas on many aspects build, reshape our understanding. For example, he mentioned in the book, all successful economic bodies are all mixed economies, which is nowhere to be seen in mainstream discourse. From this book, readers can understand 
why China insists on the public ownership as the main body. He also mentions in classical economies, economic rent doesn't exist in a free market, but the financial oligarchies of nowadays twisted the idea. Through this book, as Chinese readers, we have even more reason to believe in our national economic system that not only has it passed the taste of time, but also has a strong theoretical foundation. I believe the audience are looking forward to it. I will give a brief presentation. In order to facilitate the readers, in addition to editing language, editing, it also comes in hard copies with the English title in gold stamp. Inside, there are several photos of the author on various occasions. And here, as you can see, are the members of the editorial committee of the Global South Thought series. So more books of this series will be coming and the destiny of civilization is the first one. Continuing, there are also there are prefaces by Professor Wen Tiejun and Professor Lao Qin Chi. And here you can see the con the content table of the book. The book is divided into three parts with 13 chapters. In the end, we have the appendix where we introduce the main academic contributions of the author and his main publications. The book is now, is now on pre-sale and available in Jingdong Mall. Thank you. Thank you very much. Congratulations, everybody, on the publication of the Chinese edition. And we'll have some uh, more time at the end of the session to further discuss the book. Uh, but now we will begin with the panel proper. And our first speaker for today is Dr. Radhika Desai. Radhika is a professor in the Department of Political Studies and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group at the University of Manitoba. She is the convener of the International Manifesto Group and the author of numerous articles and multiple books, including Geopolitical Economy, After US Hegemony, Globalization and Empire, uh, which is also available in a Chinese edition, uh, I believe at jd.com. And most recently, uh, she has published Capitalism, Coronavirus and War, a geopolitical economy in which she investigates the decay of neoliberal financialized capitalism and the accelerating decline of the US-led capitalist world's imperial power while it lashes out with the new, new Cold War on China and other international aggression. She visits Russia and China frequently thanks to her connections with universities there and important institutions like the Valdai Club and the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Uh, 
So Radhika, please, and maybe you want to briefly hold up your book too. Uh, yes, thank you very much, Ashley. And uh, here is the uh, Chinese uh, 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 translation of my book published by uh, East China Normal University and Chongqing Press. Um, and uh, it's a it's I put the Chinese title in the in the chat for everyone, and you can as um, uh, Ashley said, get it on JD.com and many other platforms as well. So thank you very much for that very kind introduction. And thank you to Kinshi and other organizers for organizing uh, this panel and the larger conference of which it is a part. Um, I And I should also apologize that I will have to leave on the hour. So in about 45 minutes, because I have a medical appointment and I'm sorry to have upset the general the originally planned schedule of this meeting. But anyway, I will give my presentation now. So the title that we were given is uh, Geopolitics and Political Economy, The Looming War Against China. And I would just say right at the start that I, I think it would probably be better to call it geopolitical and political economy uh, for two for a couple of reasons. One, the very idea of geopolitics tends to be dominated or the field that is known as geopolitics tends to be dominated by extremely right wing uh, tendencies in, in, in writing. And, 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 and in, in reality, it also tends to separate something called geopolitics from something else called geoeconomics, which does not make sense. Good critical writers, including writers like Marx and other important Marxists, actually studied political economy. And that's why I've coined the term geopolitical economy to try to understand how economics, politics, the, the two most important things, and then other things as well, combine in a historical whole um, to, uh, uh, to, to um, uh, uh, combine in a historical whole. And that's, we have to understand it as an evolving historical whole. And that's why I've uh, proposed this new approach to world affairs, which Excuse I've called geopolitical economy. Yes, I, I saw that actually, and oh, I will try okay. and slow down. Uh, my speaking. Okay, so um, so so anyway, that's why it's better to call it geopolitical and political economy. So what I would like to do is address the broad question of why there is a war looming against China, but also why it is destined to be messy, contradictory, and confused, much as the current proxy war on Russia is all those things, messy, contradictory, confused. I mean, in some ways, you could also say that the war on China has already begun if by war we understand not just military operations, but also hostilities across a range of fields, trade and technology, uh, finance, uh, uh, ideology, all of these things are already going on. There is already a war against China. Um, indeed, uh, 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 the, the, the war against China may be just looming, but as we know, the one against Russia is already taking place. Uh, and as I say, it is also a very messy war to begin with. It's a proxy war. It's not an outright war. Everybody knows that it's a war between the United States and Russia, but it is being conducted through the instrument of Ukraine. And as Professor Mearsheimer has pointed out, the United States seems determined to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. That is to say, Ukraine is being is the instrument and also the sacrifice in this war. 
The two are also related. Uh, uh, very many prominent thinkers have related them. Henry Kissinger, for example, has said that the United States is going to war against China and, and Russia, uh, uh, or is, is imminently going to go to war against China and Russia. And many others have also made the Taiwan, made the analogy of the Ukraine war with China. That is to say, just as the United States has gone to war against Russia over Ukraine, so the United States can be expected to go to war against China over Taiwan. Um, why is there a looming war on China? The short answer is the United States made a big mistake and then went, oops. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that in the 1990s, in the post-Cold War period, uh, from, the, uh, uh, from the 1990s onwards, the United States began a long engagement with China. Uh, the United States said we should not, you know, uh, the way to deal with foreign, you know, human rights problems with China is to engage with China, etc. And much of this engagement was actually at the behest of U.S. corporations who wanted to invest in China and who wanted to outsource in China. So both for foreign direct investment and outsourcing began to increase in this period. Uh, 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 the ex Chinese exports to the United States began to increase as well. And the two became so integrated that by the early 2000s, um, some writers, uh, uh, I'm thinking of Niall Ferguson and um, uh, Shularik, I forget his first name, talking about Chimerica, that is the idea that the United States and China had become so integrated, they constituted a kind of a, a, a single system. Uh, so, so, so in this way, uh, you, you, this was the moment. And then, however, uh, oh, sorry, and all this engagement had taken place uh, on the grounds that essentially uh, on the US assumption that essentially China would become and remain a subordinated producer of low cost cheap manufactured goods. And not only that, it would over time become increasingly neoliberal. So essentially it would lose its communist character, its socialist character and essentially become a subordinated neoliberal third world economy, which would always know its place and you know uh, uh, supply the United States with what it wanted. But of course, by the late 2000s, particularly after the 2008 financial crisis, when the United States went into a deep recession while China was able to turn its giant economy on a dime and continue growing. And not only that, over the last decade and more, it has become increasingly clear that China had absolutely no intention of remaining a subordinated, low technology, low cost, cheap labor producer, and has increasingly presented uh, a technological uh, uh, challenges to the United States. So China has not only an export uh, surplus with the United States, which is a persistent and growing one, but it also now represents a technological challenge. So essentially, this was the kind of the oops moment. You already had uh, uh, Bush, it, already during the George Bush Jr., you had uh, George Bush Jr. imposing tariffs on Chinese uh, uh, textiles and steel and what have you on the grounds that the Chinese were dumping these goods on the United States. Then under Obama, you had the pivot to Asia. Then, uh, 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 then under Trump, of course, you had essentially the launching of a veritable uh, a trade war against uh, uh, China. 
And now, of course, everybody thought when Biden was elected that Biden would be, uh, you know, would, 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 would represent a more sensible, more peaceable policy towards China. Nothing doing. Biden has not only continued the policies of Trump, but in fact, he has intensified the uh, economic trade technological confrontation and also added a thick layer of military confrontation on top of that. Um, so you have uh, the the offensive uh, visits of U.S. Uh, officials and uh, office holders to Taiwan, for instance, the increasing saber rattling across a range of different things, the publication of documents that say China is our chief strategic uh, competitor as well as adversary and, and, and so on and so forth. And above all, you have the creation of new alliances such as AUKUS, et cetera. And, the extension of NATO's remit to what's now being called the Indo-Pacific. Indo-Pacific only because the United States still hopes to uh, drag India into an alliance uh, with China. So, so this is the reason why a war is looming against China. This is the way in which it has unfolded. But to me, to understand why we are here, why there is a looming war against China, why there is an actual war, or if even if it's a proxy war against Russia, we need to take a longer and deeper look. Uh, we need to, uh, uh, to understand exactly, uh, and also uh, this longer and deeper look will help us to understand why it's going to be messy, confused and contradictory like the one on Russia. Um, and NATO provides us with a good segue because in order to understand the deeper causes of the current situation, we have to put the United States and its world role and NATO as its principal instrument of its world role in the longer history of imperialism. Now, that longer history itself is much misunderstood. The mainstream simply denies the existence of any such thing. It basically, uh, uh, if it talks about imperialism at all, it reduces it to formal colonialism. Um, and, uh, 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 and 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 uh, and essentially, even when talking about formal colonialism, uh, so sorry, it reduces to formal colonialism so that today, the uh, poverty, the low productive level of uh, so many countries in the world, the third world or the world majority, whatever you want to call it, is essentially blamed on their own original sin of backwardness. Uh, if and even when talking about colonialism, what happens is that it is it sort of praised with faint condemnation, if we might say that is to say it is barely condemned. And sometimes it is even celebrated for if not if for nothing else than for integrating the world into a single whole. That is to say, its subordination is celebrated as imperialism, because that is what it means when people say silly things like the period, the decades before 1914 was the first wave of globalization. It was not no such thing. It was these were the decades of imperialism, of intensified imperialism and imperial competition among various countries. So this is the problem with the mainstream. But even critical views of imperialism uh, have a problem, which is 
why I've had to propose this uh, new critical view of looking at imperialism and the whole the evolution of the world order of capitalism in the form of geopolitical economy. Very briefly, what are those problems? Well, first of all, ultimately, all these critical views for reasons I've explored in, in my book, ultimately fail to understand how the roots of imperialism lie in the dynamics of capitalism itself. And they are unable to understand it because they separate economics from politics and every other economics from society, from politics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, some even say, some even go so far as to say, and these people who are people who call themselves Marxists, they say that imperialism is not necessary to capitalism and others who can't accept this, thank God, uh, uh, however, continue to try to examine imperialism, but are extremely hazy about its roots in the dynamics of capitalism. As a result, many also end up fixating on some isolated element like capital exports. How can capital exports be the centerpiece of any theory of imperialism when the United States, rather than exporting capital, is sucking capital? It's a sinkhole for the world's capital from all over the world. It just does not make sense. Uh, in this understanding also, imperialism is regarded as a historical constant. You show how radical you are by essentially talking, uh, saying imperialism is very powerful and it is as powerful today as it was before, etc. And finally, they also end up accepting the narrative of U.S. hegemony. This narrative, in fact, is extremely problematic. The real story, in fact, is very different. Imperialism, as I've argued in a number of my writings, including geopolitical economy and capitalism, coronavirus and war, and many articles, is rooted in the contradictions of capitalism. Essentially, capitalism is not a self-sustaining system. It is not a self-contained system. Its contradictions make it expansion uh, expansionist because capitalism cannot satisfy the conditions of its existence within the territory of any single economy, no matter how large it may be. And what capitalism tends to want from the rest of the world is that the rest of the world become accept uh, the excess capital and excess commodities produced by major capitalist countries, while at the same time, supply those capitalist countries with cheap labor and cheap raw materials. Essentially, the purpose of imperialism therefore ends up becoming to open up uh, the economies of the rest of the world so that they may be open to servicing the needs of the major capitalist economies. Unfortunate, uh, uh, and, and so the real, so this is the, the first major point. Now, in this story, imperialism exp, uh, was in first initially in the early stages of industrial capitalism, it took the form of what one writer called the expansion of England to create the biggest empire the world ever had. However, the rest of the world was not going to take subordination, economic subordination lying down. And in the early period of the expansion of England, many countries or some important countries, including Germany, the United States and Japan, essentially industrialized in a uh, in a in a uh, industrialized through processes of state-led development behind protectionist walls in order to challenge the dominance of the UK on the world market. And the result was that already by the late 19th century, the world had become multipolar. 
because this type of imperialism elicits a resistance of the sort that you already saw in the early instances in the United States, Germany, Japan, etc. The only way of resisting imperialism is to engage in this sort of state-led development. Uh, so you saw that, but at the, at the time, at the time these three countries industrialized, enough of the world remained open to colonization that this led more or less immediately to a competition for colonies and uh, in the late 19th century. The problem with the United States, however, is that it never acquired a very substantial empire, chiefly because it arrived at this game rather late because up until the very end of the 19th century, it was involved in the project of essentially internal colonization. So the United States arrives at this moment late. But nevertheless, so, so and also my, one of my main points is that the high point of imperialism is reached already in 1914. After that, imperialism has been declining. If you want to prove how radical you are by saying that imperialism is just as strong, you are going to lose a lot of accuracy. The radicalism lies in understanding that imperialism is declining and in the process of its decline, becoming desperate, uh, uh, irresponsible, and um, harder and harder to control. Okay. Um, now, um, so so the eventual result of this uh, process of imperialism has been challenges by anti-imperialist countries. After the U.S., uh, Germany, Japan, etc., you also had the challenges represented by socialist countries, preeminently, of course, the Soviet Union and China. So. This is so by the early 20th century, when the United States, seeing that the Britain was getting weaker uh, and aspiring to take Britain's place, the United States essentially wanted to become the leading capitalist country, but it had the historical misfortune of getting its opportunity of doing this precisely when the world had become too multipolar for the US to succeed, even though the United States actually uh, uh, moderated its ambitions by saying we will never acquire an empire of the size Britain has. We will have to settle for making the dollar the world's money and, and essentially trying to keep the world economy open through other means. So, and, and of course, this ambition is essentially what gets theorized as the theory of US hegemony. It's not a, 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 that it has, my argument has always been that the US hegemony was never accomplished. What we have is a series of attempts to try to accomplish it. And today the United States ability to achieve this is lower than ever before. The United States has made the most zealous attempts, but has not succeeded. The United States was had to do this in the context, not only of great multipolarity, but in a context where socialism, uh, which is a, superior form of productive organization had already emerged. So the United States fails to uh, achieve economic dominance. In fact, it's the relative economic size has declined over time. Its ability to exert financial control has only led to more and more financial crises and increasing contradictions within the dollar system, which uh, I have uh, explored in geopolitical economy and Michael and I have also written about it together. So what has become clear in the 21st century is that if it's failing to exert economic control, financial control, diplomatic control, it is also failing to exert military control. 
Um, already, uh, we have had uh, uh, previously a major moment under the Carter presidency when for a brief while, President Carter thought he was going to throw in the towel, give up the project of American dominance and accept that the United States cannot achieve this goal. Then under Reagan and uh, successive presidents, this project was uh, revived, particularly with the collapse of the Soviet Union. This project got a huge boost, at least subjectively, but objectively the conditions were not there for the successful achievement. And that's why you got the Trump moment. The Carter moment was matched by the Trump moment. Trump was not exactly uh, uh, particularly you know, uh, concerned about the rest of the world or anything, but he, due to political compulsions, was forced to turn his uh, attention inwards to rectifying, at least appearing to rectify US problems. And he was the only president of recent times not to start a new war. That's also quite interesting. What Biden is trying to do at the present moment is actually to salvage the US project. And in this, NATO is very central. Uh, so I'm, I'm this is the last set of points I want to make about NATO. So NATO, essentially, you have to realize that NATO has been created uh, as part of the U.S.'s uh, 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 inability to accept the actual principles of the United Nations. So NATO is a sort of a rival organization, a rival collective security organization whose, uh, 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 whose aims are actually to preserve capitalism, to advance U.S. capital in particular, uh, uh, in violation of the anti-imperialist principles embedded in the United States. And NATO is the weapon of choice of uh, the US and it is key to Biden's strategy. Biden realizes that the United States cannot achieve world dominance on its own. It needs its allies. Its allies need to be on side. So that is why the Biden has essentially elaborated this idea of the United States uh, being the, you know, creating an alliance of democracies against so-called autocracies. And of course, NATO is central to this. But we, as we could see in the Vilnius summit, um, this project is already unraveling. Um, uh, uh, the Vilnius summit was focused on Ukraine and Russia, but of course, as we know, the, uh, the Russia-China war are linked, and I have argued in a piece I recently published in Counterpunch that essentially the way to see the linkage between the Russia war and the looming war, the, and a potential war on China is this. The United States wants the uh, Europeans essentially to come on side is using the war against Russia to bring the Europeans on side, to leave them with no opportunity, uh, no alternative, but to side with the United States when the United States launches a potential war against China. Why is Russia important? Because historically, uh, although uh, notwithstanding all the rhetoric of NATO, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the fact of the matter has been that NATO, uh, sorry, that that Europe has actually historically been rather difficult to keep on side. Every so often, whether it's in uh, 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 the Ostpolitik of Willy Brandt or uh, more recently uh, attempts by the Europeans to try to create their own common security and defense policy, the Europeans have tried to assert their autonomy vis-a-vis -vis the United States. And that autonomy will always require 
good relations with Russia. So the because that Russia is sits right next door, Russia is also a capable of supplying a lot of what Europe needs in terms of resources and so on. So historically, this has always been the case. By launching this war against Russia over Ukraine, the United States wants the Europeans to sever all ties with Russia and to be reduced to dependence on the US in such a way that it can be sure of getting the uh, Europeans on side. Um, so, uh, 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 right. So, and, and, and so historically, the way in which the, uh, the US has disrupted the process of better relations between Western Europe and Russia is by demonstrating its military might. The US did it in Yugoslavia. In Yugoslavia, essentially it disrupted a European attempt to try to create a, a European security structure, uh, uh, particularly a German attempt by essentially intervening in the war and not permitting the war to be uh, decided on Germany's terms. So then it succeeded, and therefore it was able to keep the Europeans on side, keep and uh, not only uh, keep it on side, but even to expand NATO, and therefore to ex you know to, uh, to essentially to to piggyback the process of NATO expansion on the process of EU expansion. So this subordination was achieved, but this time it is very clear that. The, mili the, the, the military factor, which is all the United States has left, essentially, is going to fail. And this, uh, and this we know because uh, already in the 21st century, we have had a series of military failures on the part of the United States. I mean, quite frankly, even before the 21st century, I mean, Korea and Vietnam were not exactly shining successes of United States military strategy. So the, 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 the military uh, 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 angle, the, 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 the military element is going to uh, uh, be shown to be, uh, not to be the, uh, uh, the US's strong suit. So, essentially, and of course, amid, amid all this, there has also been the rise of China. So the United States has been declining economically. It has lost diplomatic influence. Uh, it, now it faces clear military defeat in a war in which, for which it has asked the Europeans to sacrifice an enormous amount. If it fails in this, then the Europeans, uh, it cannot be sure of getting Europeans on side. And let me also say, I'm just coming to my conclusion, but let me also say that if the Europeans had been reluctant to be dragged into the war with Russia, they will be even more reluctant to be dragged in any war with China because they have a lot more invested in their relationship with China. The relationship with China has been growing ever more thick. So essentially there is, is a time of division on a number of uh, fronts. First of all, ordinary people in Europe as well as the United States are increasingly not in favor of wars. They do not want the war against Russia. They do not want the war, any war against China. There will also, for reasons I've just given, be divisions between uh, the US, US and Europe, both on Russia and on China. And finally, there were already divisions among the elites of the various countries. There are elites in the United States, including corporate elites who do not want to have a war uh, uh, with China. Uh, there are, there are pro-Chinese and, and, and anti-Chinese 
corporates, essentially different parts of the US business world that benefit from uh, a war in China and those that do not benefit from a war with China. So in this, that is why, as I said, this war is bound to be messy, confused, and ultimately, it is not going to be a win for the United States. But of course, if it is attempted, if a military conflict is actually attempted, it has the potential not only to do a lot of damage, but to bring the world to nuclear war. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Radhika. That was great, um, especially the history of uh, imperialism to, to uh, I guess, frame the talk and show where we are today, or indicate how we've got to where we are today. Now, our next uh, speaker is Michael Hudson, um, whom I've already introduced. So, Michael, over to you. Well, one reason that we've uh, scheduled the speech for today is we wanted to wait until there was the NATO meeting in Vilnius uh, that was going to spell out exactly where they're going to go from here. And the uh, feeling of the meeting last week was it was like a funeral, as if they just buried a family member, and the family member they buried was Ukraine. It's obvious now that the Ukraine army uh, is basically finished. Uh, Russia has uh, wiped it out. Uh, the Ukrainians are uh, left only with a terrorist uh, means of fighting, and uh, NATO has actually run out of arms. They've used uh, 50 years of stored up uh, uh, weaponry of guns and helicopters and tanks. They've all been thrown in. Uh, essentially emptied out, and there's nothing more that uh, the Ukraine can do. Uh, they, it's drafting uh, people. It goes out on the street to begin to draft people, and uh, it's, uh, obviously the war there is over. And uh, the, the whole uh, last year and a half of NATO's and America's attempt to drive uh, Russia out of Ukraine and move NATO right up to Russian borders uh, is a failure. Uh, and so what were they going to do in uh, Vilnius? Well, the NATO members tried to revive their spirits by saying, all right, let's uh, prepare for the next great fight against China. And China is now designated as the uh, ultimate strategic enemy, number one of the United States and of Europe. Uh, and to prepare for this showdown, NATO announced a commitment uh, that they were going to uh, spread their military presence all the way to the Pacific. Uh, there's really nothing for NATO to do anymore on the Atlantic. And it's called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, it, it now says, uh, we're going to relocate NATO in the Straits of China. Uh, we're going, uh, just as uh, uh, Radica said, uh, they had planned to fight to the last Ukrainian. Uh, they're hoping that maybe the Taiwanese will be willing to fight China to the last Taiwanese uh, and uh, basically slow what seems to be inevitable. The fact that uh, uh, China, Russia, it, the BRICS partners, along with the Global South, can, are all uh, creating their own unit independently of the United States and NATO. Well, uh, the NATO plan that was announced a few weeks ago is they're trying to ca uh, carve away China's military allies and trading partners, above all uh, Russia, uh, by fighting in the Ukraine. They think, well, they expected that uh, Russia was actually going to lose uh, in the Ukraine, despite having a 10 to one advantage in troops and in, uh, uh, in arms and uh, basically strength. Well, uh, the, uh, President Biden said, uh, we'll turn the ruble uh, to rubble. Uh, but he also said 
that since uh, the fight in Ukraine against Russia is really uh, a fight over what kind of economy the world system is going to have, this is going to take many decades. So what we're really seeing uh, in uh, Ukraine and what the NATO uh, meeting said was, that's only the first battle in what's going to be uh, a many generations war against China. And because they realized that uh, other countries until now, from uh, the Bandung Conference of Third World Countries in the 1950s, 70 years ago, other uh, countries didn't have the uh, ability to be self-sufficient in food, in basic uh, productions. Uh, but now that the United States has very helpfully uh, shifted its manufacturing uh, power uh, to uh, China and other Asian countries, now the rest of the world doesn't need uh, subservience to the United States anymore. It can go it alone. And this is what is so uh, upsetting uh, to the United States. Well, uh, Radica has explained initially about how the United States uh, well, uh, benefited enormously from the trade with China. Uh, uh, when President Clinton uh, admitted China into the World Trade Organization and uh, began the, uh, in, in 2000, the plan was uh, to replace American labor with low-priced Asian labor and Chinese labor. The objective of free trade was to reduce uh, uh, employment in the United States to cause unemployment which would lower the wages of labor. And by lowering the wages of labor and the living standards, this would make uh, American companies more profitable. They'd be more profitable because they would now be using the cheap labor of uh, uh, China and other Asian countries instead of the United States. So it looked like um, the, a win-win for uh, the corporations in the United States who were, and uh, the Democratic Party that uh, President Clinton was the head of basically represents Wall Street uh, and the corporate economy, not, uh, not labor. There is no party in the United States that really uh, supports labor. So uh, the uh, idea is now, uh, how is the United States going to uh, continue to siphon off all of the wealth of uh, other countries in itself. It deindustrialized. It's uh, basically lost its financial power. The world is moving uh, into uh, dependence on its other. This is exactly what uh, is, has led the United States to say, we can't let the world change this way. Uh, or if it is going to change this way, at least we can slow it down. And uh, you've, uh, one thing that the last uh, year and a half has shown in the fighting in Ukraine is that the United States has uh, uh, been able to uh, beat one set of countries, the NATO countries. Uh, the uh, NATO now has to uh, spend an enormous amount of money replacing all of its, uh, the arms that it's used up in Ukraine. Who's going to get the business? American military industrial complex, Raytheon and other countries. Uh, the expectation is that uh, the uh, US balance of payments at least will, uh, uh, in currency, will rise against the Euro. Uh, and the war, instead of destroying Russia, has turned uh, uh, Western Europe, uh, Germany and others, uh, into a dead zone. Well, that's not the way they're describing it. Uh, the uh, European Union commissioner, uh, Joseph Borrell, uh, says, yes, the world is splitting into two parts. Germany and Europe is the garden. 
the uh, the U.S. and NATO part of the world is the dollar area uh, is the garden. The rest of the world is the jungle. What Borrell didn't say is that there's a gardener to a garden. You can't have a garden without a gardener who uh, uh, comes and picks all the crops. The United States is the gardener for the European garden. And uh, the problem is, how are they going to relate to the jungle uh, that is uh, actually treated like an invasive species? Well, from an economic point of view, uh, NATO from the very beginning uh, has been a drastic error. Uh, it's left uh, Europe and uh, it destroyed European industry with uh, the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline. And uh, the sanctions against Russia have really been sanctions against Europe. Uh, Russia has been able to export its oil, its, uh, its uh, minerals, its uh, food. Uh, the only countries that have been sanctioned are the NATO countries, which are blocked from uh, trading with, uh, with Russia. Uh, and they're now saying, uh, we want to prevent uh, Europe from trading with China as well. The, and the amazing thing is that uh, the Europeans seem to be going along with it. And what we're seeing is a replacement of uh, uh, how traditionally people have analyzed uh, geopolitical economy. The whole idea uh, of uh, or assumption under most analysis, if you're making a study of how is the world going to evolve, you assume that countries are going to follow their economic self-interest, but that's not happening. NATO and uh, NATO countries in Europe are following US interests, but not their own interests. They're actually sacrificing their economy in order to uh, uh, fight, fight against Russia. And excuse me, I need a glass of water. They've uh, replaced the economic causality of history with what they call national security uh, uh, considerations not economic gains, national security. National security means the American security and the Americans feel very insecure if there are other countries uh, that are independent of the United States. When China began to say, uh, I'm, we're glad to uh, create factories and manufacture, we're glad to uh, provide employment and uh, make enough money to build up our international reserves and become strong, but uh, we're going to use the Chinese wealth to increase uh, the living standards of the Chinese population and to uh, increase uh, China's productive powers, to in increase the, uh, the size and the balance of the Chinese economy, not the American economy. Uh, the American dream in the early 2000s was that Wall Street firms would go over to China and saying, let us organize your industry. We'll organize uh, uh, corporations in China. Uh, we'll be the major owners of it and all the profits uh, that are going to be made from uh, this uh, Chinese industrial employment will be sent back to investors in the United States just like the United States had planned to do uh, with Russian industry in the 1990s under Yeltsin. But uh, China didn't have a Boris Yeltsin. Uh, they actually put their own interest first. And this is uh, what is uh, upset the United States uh, so much. Uh, so uh, you've seen uh, uh, NATO 
not only deplete its uh, whole inventories of guns and bullets and artillery and tanks and helicopters, but uh, they've, uh, without Russian gas, they've had to close down their heavy industry. Uh, how can you make steel without using uh, fuel, oil and gas to, uh, to, me to melt it? How can you uh, make, have an industry without gas and uh, energy? And if you look at the, uh, G of the economic growth of any country for thousands of years, the energy per worker is what explains the rise in productivity and the rise in living standards. Uh, you'd think that uh, Europe would have said, well, we need energy in order to grow. Our interest lies in uh, uh, closer and closer relationships with Russia, China, and the parts of the world that are growing. Well, that was the dream. They, uh, and this is what they've been willing to forego. Uh, it, European business was uh, investing in Russia, investing in Kazakhstan, Central Asia, uh, investing in China, and all of a sudden they're directed by NATO to say, you have to stop that uh, investment over there. Uh, you have to uh, treat America as your supplier of gas uh, at six times uh, the price of Russian gas, uh, and you have to build new ports for liquid national, natural gas LNG to import our gas, uh, American gas, instead of uh, uh, Russian gas, uh, you've had to, you should uh, reorganize uh, your whole uh, policy along national security lines. And remember, it's a jungle out there. And uh, when Borrell said it's a jungle, he means uh, it's very dangerous to move to uh, uh, <laughs> countries uh, outside of uh, the US uh, neoliberal sphere. And it's certainly dangerous for politicians because the United States has been uh, meddling in European politics for the last 70 years uh, to make sure that political leaders are uh, uh, basically uh, follow the US uh, plan for how economies should be organized in ways to, uh, to um, benefit the United States. So by joining America's crusade to destroy the Russian economy, and promote regime change, Germany and other countries uh, have really uh, cut off their economic growth. Th their economy last year has shrunk. Uh, and the way that uh, the Euro is uh, organized as a monetary system, it was designed in the United States by the University of Chicago, so that uh, despite the rise in unemployment, despite the huge uh, uh, need for uh, subsidizing uh, gas prices in Europe so that uh, families will have enough, uh, uh, can afford to heat their homes or air condition their home. Uh, uh, all of this is uh, uh, subordinated to national security, meaning uh, the new war of the NATO countries, uh, the golden billion of uh, English speakers and uh, 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 Western Europeans against the global majority. Uh, that is being driven to uh, act by itself uh, just to uh, maintain its own economic growth. So the next uh, step uh, for, is for Europe and the United States to stop trading and investing in China. Well, the amazing thing is that uh, uh, in the last few months, American diplomats have gone to China and said, and asked them, actually, won't you support us against Russia? Won't you tell Russia to stop fighting in Ukraine? so that uh, we can rearm uh, the uh, Ukrainians and uh, have the Polish army uh, uh, move up, up uh, to the Russian border. Uh, they've actually asked China to help uh, 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 separate itself 
from uh, Russia, which uh, at the same time, America opposes Russia because of its uh, support uh, with China. Well, obviously, uh, uh, China has, uh, President Xi has announced that China is a strategic uh, ally, uh, even though it would like to see uh, peace uh, in Ukraine, uh, it, uh, it is not uh, crying for the fact that, well, if there's going to be military fighting, it's uh, better for China that it occurs in Western Europe than uh, in, in the China Sea. So uh, the, uh, ironically, this uh, isolation of uh, uh, other countries, this announcement of a long-term war against China and Russia is forcing China, Russia, and the BRICS allies to go it alone with the uh, United uh, Eurasia, uh, and the new core uh, is being created that uh, has its own uh, principles. And these principles of economic growth uh, are different from the United States. The United States uh, forward planning is done by Wall Street firms. Finance is uh, the major planner of uh, the economy today. Uh, and that's uh, part of what uh, people uh, have difficulty understanding. Uh, the fight that you're seeing today uh, is sometimes said, well, it's between capitalism and socialism, the capitalist West versus socialist China uh, and its allies. But uh, the problem is, what is capitalism? It's not what it used to be. Uh, industrial capitalism was for a, a very much uh, aimed at evolving into socialism. Industrial capitalism, the way that the United States got rich, Germany rose to industrial power, uh, and even England was doing pretty much what China has been doing for the last 30 years. Uh, it was the industrial capitalists that said, we want governments to play a major role. We want government to provide basic infrastructure. We want government to provide free education, free health care, and we want governments to uh, uh, take over natural monopolies like railroads and uh, uh, buses and transportation, because if we can lower the cost of living, and the, then uh, that lowers the cost of doing business. Because if the government provides education and other basic needs freely or subsidized prices, then employers do not have to pay uh, 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 labor a high enough wage so that it has to pay for its own health care. It has to pay for its own education. It has to go into a, to a lifetime of debt in order to get a university degree in the United States. It has to uh, uh, pay enormous uh, uh, medical uh, overhead costs. Uh, this is not industrial capitalism anymore. This is finance capitalism. The government uh, uh, support of the economy that uh, every, economy, every industrial economy used in its takeoff has now been financialized and privatized. And that's what makes the Europe and the United States economies different from, from China. And this is why they would uh, love to make money uh, from China by uh, selling all of its uh, infrastructure, selling its railroads, privatizing them, privatizing everything that they could in order to create monopolies and to charge monopoly rent. Uh, the conflict between America and China is that of finance capitalism versus uh, an industrial socialism, uh, you could call it in China, because uh, the final stage of industrialization uh, already in the 19th century was seen to be socialism. Uh, that's what, uh, there were many different kinds of socialism that people talked about, but at least the idea was that capitalism is evolving into socialism. Uh, but in the United States and Europe, uh, 
that didn't that is now uh, fighting back. The the uh, landlord class and the financial class have fought back to reverse the whole uh, role of industrial capitalism as a reform, uh, as a policy of getting rid of the landlord class, getting rid of the banking class, getting rid of monopolies. All of that is out in the West, and uh, the result is that the West is in a position of shrinking. So uh, you can see what America was frightened about when it saw uh, uh, Western Europe trade and invest more with Russia and China. It worried it was going to be left out. And what could it do? It thought, well, if we can have a war against Russia, we can. Uh, the people will uh, rise up and overthrow P uh, Putin and uh, put a more friendly, uh, U.S. friendly uh, leader like Boris Yeltsin in. And then we can do the same to China. We can impose sanctions on China, uh, prevent it uh, from importing sophisticated computer chips uh, and blocking uh, its growth, and it'll have no choice but to say, okay, well, uh, stop the sanctions. You've won. Uh, we're going to adopt a U.S. style uh, economy. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, that hasn't worked uh, in, in uh, the Ukraine-Russia war so far. And uh, the question is whether it's going to work uh, in China. Well, how on earth are you going to get the Europeans to, uh, uh, to stop their uh, trade and investment with China? Well, the answer was in a, in a series of speeches in the last few weeks, including uh, when uh, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen went to China. They say uh, the, the, uh, the shape of world trade is now no longer going to be uh, trade with the most efficient countries and buying at the lowest prices in the most productive market. Any form of trade, Janet Yeltsin uh, explained to uh, China, is a risk. It's the risk of being cut off and destabilized. So uh, the Americans have said, well, when uh, you Russians thought that you were benefiting from buying inexpensive Russian gas and oil and titanium and helium and other inputs, but everything, uh, trade, all this was a risk. It's a risk that Russia and China might suddenly stop trading with you and uh, uh, destabilize you and try to gain control by saying, we're going to turn off our gas or China will turn off uh, the computers it makes and all the manufactured goods that it makes. Uh, the warning was that uh, any trade with China is by definition a risk. And uh, Germany's foreign minister, Annalise Baerbach said the same thing, trade is a risk. What they don't realize is that why on earth would Russia or China say, let's destabilize Europe. Let's all of a sudden stop exporting to it. Let's not export anything more and let's uh, wreck the economy unless they do what we, the Chinese, uh, uh, want to do. Well, why would they do it? The, the world is already doing what uh, uh, China wants to do because China has shaped its trade, shaped its international investment in a way that benefits the entire economy. Uh, what the United States has done is uh, say, when it says trade is risk, uh, is uh, trade with anybody except the United States is risk. There's no recognition that European trade with the United States is risks uh, being cut off by American sanctions. And since uh, 1945, the only country that's imposed sanctions on other countries is the United States, not Russia, not China. Uh, not other countries. Uh, uh, right after China's revolution, the United States tried to overthrow Mao by imposing sanctions on grain 
the attempt was to starve uh, China and force uh, uh, a counter-revolution against Mao. Canada helped uh, uh, break the uh, sanctions and uh, sent grain to China. Uh, it's no longer a friend of China, but it was uh, back then. Uh, so the United States is uh, projecting uh, its own policy as if China and Russia wanted to dominate other countries by wrecking them. And the only way that the United States can achieve power over countries is to destabilize them with sanctions. But uh, the uh, uh, other countries have no uh, reason to destabilize uh, Europe or to impose sanctions. They have nothing to defend. Uh, they were, it, there was a mutual gain between uh, Europe and Russia and Europe and China with uh, their uh, organization together. And now that that's pulled out, uh, this leaves uh, the United States and Europe uh, basically isolated uh, and uh, China and uh, the Eurasia and uh, the global south and the BRICS together now say, well, we are the center of world manufacturing power. We're the center of the world's population. We're the center of uh, world raw materials. We're the center of agricultural production. Uh, if the United States can sanction us, uh, that is a warning to us that we need to be self-sufficient so that we don't have to be dependent on any other country again. Uh, and just like uh, the United States said, well, we can uh, disrupt your, uh, your financial system by cutting you off from the bank clearing system, the SWIFT uh, system, uh, 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 the China and Russia have each created their own financial system to be independent. Uh, there's no need for uh, an interdependency anymore. Uh, the, the US and NATO plan for a unipolar world has failed and uh, uh, the uh, world the China, Russia, India, Iran and the, the BRICS uh, are creating with the Global South is a multilateral world where uh, there is mutual gain, not uh, exploitation. Uh, and uh, the, the trade is risk view uh, is, uh, is over the long run will have to yield to basic economic interests. Well, the problem is what can the United States do to stop this? Uh, there's only, the United States can't fight militarily. It, there's never going to be an American army again since the Vietnam War ended the draft. All it can do is have proxy armies fighting. It was able to uh, put uh, to stage a color revolution in Ukraine, make a coup d'etat, turn Ukraine over to the Nazis, who revived all of the World War II uh, hatred of uh, Russia, the, the old Nazi uh, anti-Russian uh, policy. Uh, and uh, they were able at least to tie up Russia there. Uh, it's unlikely that it can do the same with Taiwan because uh, what does America have to offer Taiwan? Taiwan can, can have a, a close economic relationship uh, with China with mutual trade and investment in a growing economy, or it can link to the American economy and indeed find a US market for its uh, uh, information technology, its computer chips, but the American economy is now shrinking uh, as the European economies are. So you're ha having two parts of the world, a shrinking uh, NATO US part, uh, the garden, and uh, the growing part, the jungle. That's what jungles do. Uh, they grow more, uh, more than the garden and they don't have a gardener to uh, take off all of their, uh, all, all of their surplus. So uh, you're, you're having uh, 
really the uh, the final evolution of in uh, in Asia, uh, in China, and the other countries of what the world was expected to evolve into at the point that World War One began. We're now picking up history again, uh, and uh, uh, we're uh, under Chinese leadership, uh, Russian leadership, and other countries. They're finally getting rid of the rentier class, getting rid of the uh, hereditary landlord class, getting rid of the hereditary banking class, because China uh, and other countries are keeping control of the money and financial planning in government hands, not letting uh, finance be the finance be the uh, uh, economic planner, but governments be the economic planner, not uh, borrowing from a uh, financial creditor class uh, to fund growth, but creating your own money uh, to creating uh, their own growth. That's why the Bank of China uh, has been uh, the, uh, the driving force in uh, Chinese economic expansion, not leaving it to U.S. investors to plan China uh, in its own uh, self-interest. So that uh, basically uh, we're, we're seeing uh, the, uh, the, the failure of the United States to carve out an empire in the way that it had hoped to do. And you can say that the, the growth of uh, China, Russia, and uh, the BRICS allies are the alternative to imperialism, the alternative to empire, replacing imperialism, the empire, with uh, mutual gains. Um, and uh, we can probably discuss this more, especially if uh, Pepe is able to come in at this point. Thank you very much, Michael. That was fantastic. And well, our, uh, now we have Pepe Escobar. Uh, welcome, Pepe. Uh, Pepe is an independent geopolitical analyst, writer, and journalist. He's been a foreign correspondent since 1985. His reporting and and analysis have appeared most recently at Asia Times, Strategic Culture, Consortium News, RT and Sputnik. His latest book, Raging Twenties, Great Power Politics Meets Techno-Feudalism, analyzes the geopolitics and geoeconomics of the present decade, the 20s, in the context of the US versus Russia, China, Iran clash, including the Cold War 2.0 hybrid fight against China. So Pepe, over to you. Okay, uh, it's a huge uh, pleasure and a huge honor to be with all of you and uh, especially with Michael. Uh, I, had, I had the wrong information that this would start at 4 p.m. Paris. It's actually 3.10 in Paris now. So, uh, so I apologize for coming late, but uh, that's the information that I had in the first place. Uh, I hope I didn't miss a lot of what you're talking about. I, I managed to catch Michael for the past, uh, let's say, 20, 25 minutes. Well, uh, obviously, a masterful exposition. I would say Michael, uh, he drew the roadmap of where we are at the moment. What I could try to do uh, concisely now is to show uh, the pathways towards a multipolar world, considering that now we have what we didn't have in the 50s and the 60s during the Cold War, uh, since the Bandung Conference in 55, and then the formation of the Non-Allied Movement in the early 60s, which was destroyed by the United States, by the way. We have now a set of multilateral organizations and institutions that can organize the transition 
from unipolarity towards a multipolar world. That's the major difference compared to the end of the previous century. And now, as Eric Hobsbawm would say, the young 21st century, which is as incandescent as ever, as we experience on a daily basis, right? So, uh, so let's go, uh, you know, concisely one by one uh, over these uh, multilateral organizations. This is, of course, this is extreme. I would say this, that we, we could go on for, for days talking about each of these pathways, but let's, let's try to, to, to do it in a, in a Hollywood minute, let's put it this way, right? Starting with the BRICS. The BRICS, when they were founded uh, 20 years ago, uh, basically after an idea by Jim O'Neill, Goldman Sachs uh, guy and investor, and uh, uh, obviously spokesman for investors, in fact, is that, okay, the BRICS, the, at BRIC at the time was Brazil, Russia, India, China based on an original uh, uh, Russia-China mechanism uh, and a Brazilian-South Africa mechanism. And then that explains why South Africa was added to the BRICS. So basically, this would be the new frontier in terms of uh, international investment. Uh, when the BRICS started to seriously evolve as a, a multilateral platform was when uh, Lula was president of Brazil Hu Jintao was president of China and Putin president of Russia. They started in the mid uh, 2000s already after all that uh, hula baloo of the war on terror, which was basically the war of terror as uh, most of you uh, know, of course. Uh, the BRICS, uh, the United States was not paying too much attention to the BRICS. So the BRICS start to really discuss uh, real international uh, geoeconomic cooperation among them, and then later probably expanding to other actors. And of course, bypassing the US dollar, which was the, an absolute taboo uh, dossier at the time. Uh, of course, it took years, in fact, more than a decade for a decade and a half, at least, to see what we're seeing now, which is a de-dollarization movement among the five BRICS, and soon going to be expanded to BRICS Plus, which is the expanded BRICS. Sherpas were discussing this only two or three weeks ago, and we're going to have some breaking news about that next month at the BRICS Summit in Johannesburg in South Africa. So we have an enormous, the, the waiting list to join BRICS now is something absolutely extraordinary, something that none of us could even imagine, let's say six months ago, not to mention a year ago. We have anything between 25 and 31 nations who want to become members of BRICS plus. Uh, so they will be admitted in tiers probably. Serious candidates for the first tier include uh, Iran, Algeria, Argentina, maybe South Africa, the Emirates, and Kazakhstan. But, and this, is, this but is very, very serious. It's based on discussions that I have had with some uh, Russian uh, financial analysts, especially, and some Europeans as well, dissident Europeans, very, very important. The descent inside BRICS and the problems inside BRICS. 
the Russians told me in detail, more or less secret detail, let's put it this way, that uh, the rifts between Russia, uh, sorry, between China and India inside the BRICS and inside the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are very, very serious. And as much as the Russians try to work as a bridge between both, it's still extremely complicated. And that directly interferes with the expansion of the BRICS, where obviously the power of the five BRICS will be not diluted, but of course, they will have to share with the newcomers as well. Some of them will be extremely powerful in terms of sources of energy. Example, Saudi Arabia, Emirates, Iran, and Kazakhstan. That will change the, the balance of power inside BRICS exponentially. And, and I will say the losers in, the, in this equation will be the current weak nodes, which are Brazil and South Africa, for a number of very complex reasons. South Africa, because they are a weak link by definition, because they don't have a completely autonomous foreign policy. And they are a much smaller economy compared to the other ones. And Brazil, because Brazil basically is, uh, uh, Jake Sullivan went to Brasilia late last year with a list of demands from Lula's government in Brazil. And Lula is uh, between a rock and a, and a very, very hard place because as much as he is a leader of the global south, which is the whole global south recognizes, Lula is under severe, enormous pressure by the current administration in Washington. So his leeway is... Uh, uh, it's practically zero, in fact. But Lula is an expert, as Michael knows well, Lula is an expert negotiator and in a very, very wily negotiator. So, uh, but for the moment, he's, uh, he's in a very, very tough position. So Brazil, in terms of acting as a true sovereign at the moment, forget it. It's not going to happen. So that leaves us with the three RIC. And among the RIC, India keeps wobbling between their establishment, uh, the Hindutva crazes, and Modi trying to accommodate uh, Indian interests, it's not really, really sovereign at all. So that leaves the ones that really matter and the two powers who are actually conducting the drive towards multipolarity, Russia and China. And it's not by accident that they are the two most important BRICS and the two most important members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. We'll get to that to that in a minute. So the strategic partnership between Russia and China, which is something that in the US until a few years ago, in fact, until a year and a half ago was dismissed as, uh, ah, this is blah, blah, blah. This is shop talk. It doesn't exist. Well, they were not paying due attention uh, as they were not paying attention to what was happening in the world during the war of terror for almost 20 years. And then one day they have to leave Afghanistan because they were essentially kicked out by the Taliban. They were also they were not also paying attention to internal processes, very very complex inside Russia and inside China, militarily, diplomatically, uh, sustainable development, the organizing reorganization of the Russian economy and the Russian military, um, hypersonic weapons by Russia. Russia that nobody else has, uh, diversification of the Chinese economy, uh, uh, different uh, uh, poles of development in different parts of China, including central China in Sichuan and western China in uh, Xinjiang. 
the Americans were not paying attention to all that. They were still on war on terror. They were focused on Iran. They were trying to, and, and then they got out of the JCPOA with Iran, which was uh, the headlines for years, in fact, and nothing came out of it. So now we have uh, the ultimate nightmare of uh, uh, Zbig, Zbig New Brzezinski, as you all know, who wrote in 1997 the great chess, in the Grand Chessboard before the 9-11 era, very, very important, that uh, uh, the US should do everything possible and imaginable to prevent the ascension of a peer competitor in Eurasia. So now, as Michael knows <laughs> very, very well, the US is facing a strategic alliance of peer competitors. And they happen to be the most powerful military power in the world, Russia, and the most powerful economy in the world, China. And they are linked by a strategic partnership like they never had in recent history. And this is recognized in detail, not only by Xi Jinping, Putin, and uh, Minister of Foreign Relations in Beijing and in Moscow, but by the best qualified Russian and Chinese analysts as well. Of course, there we could go on for, there are lots of problems in the relationship as well, but essentially at the, at the top, they are in perfect sync. And that of course scares the hell out of the US establishment and especially those psycho Straussian neocons who are in charge of American uh, foreign policy at the moment or who hijacked American foreign policy uh, these past few years. So BRICS uh, next month, uh, it's a do or die moment for them. And the whole thing will be conducted essentially by Russia and China, even if Putin won't be present physically in South Africa because South Africa is not strong enough to tell everybody else, we are organizing this summit and we invite any president or any diplomat we want, and it's our responsibility. They are not sovereign enough to do that. So we're gonna have President Putin by video conference from Moscow, and he'll be physically represented in South Africa by Minister of Foreign Relations, Sergei Lavrov. But obviously Putin will be following all the major discussions among the heads of state. And of course, their foreign ministers. They will have to decide, which is something that they started to discuss, but of, of course it is in the initial stages. The procedure to get the members of BRICS plus, who will be part of the first tier, second tier, third tier, and how long this uh, admission process will last. In fact, it will go on for the rest of the decade, at least, right? And the most important item, which is de-dollarization. Uh, everything that was floated so far that the BRICS are going to announce a new BRICS currency next month in South Africa, this is totally absurd. They won't. Uh, when you talk to Sherpas, they tell you what we're going to uh, increase in terms of uh, being used by all the BRICS, the five BRICS plus the extended BRICS is what they call the R5. R5 is a very, very interest, interesting acronym because all the, all the currencies of the five current BRICS member starts with an R. 
Remimbi, Rial, uh, Rupee, Rand, and uh, what's the next? Ruble. Um, so R5 is the basic fram framework. Let's try to drive all our mutual business and the business among all of us towards using our own currencies. And then we will expand that to the new BRICS members at, at BRICS Plus as well. The discussions inside the BRICS towards a new BRICS currency or new reserve currency based on gold, based on commodities, based on both, etc. they are in a very, very incipient stage. This is going to take a long time. And then we should compare what they are discussing inside BRICS with what they are discussing inside the Eurasia Economic Union. That's extremely important. Eurasia Economic Union, five members, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Armenia, and uh, Belarus. Uh, they're planning to expand as well. They have free trade agreements with a lot of important players, for instance, Vietnam in Southeast Asia. And, and a lot of people in Southeast Asia want to have free among the ASEAN 10, the 10 nations of, the, of Southeast Asia. They are very much interested in having free trade agreements with the Eurasia Economic Union. Same with Iran. Iran, maybe before the end of this year, they're going to have a free trade agreement with the Eurasia Economic Union as well. Because Iran and Russia are very, very close partners in terms of strategic partnership. And that will lead us to another multilateral organization, which is picking up enormous speed this year, where Russia, India, and Iran are the three major powers. That's the International North-South Transportation Corridor, INSTC which people, most people in the West have absolutely no idea what it's all about. And even a lot of people in Asia are still struggling to understand what is the NISTC all about. This is extremely important. The short definition is a, a, a trade corridor that is going to bypass the Suez Canal. Who are the main players? Russia, Iran, in India. So what are we going to have both ways? There are, of, of course, uh, important players in the Caucasus like Azerbaijan. Uh, and of course, what's going to happen essentially is uh, two-way multimodal trade, because this is going to be railways, uh, ships, and roads, uh, which will come all the way from St. Petersburg to Moscow, to Astrakhan, which is a Russian port in the Caspian, crossing the Caspian. Then we're going to have many players, Russian, Iranian, and even the Kazakhs, if all the literal states of the Caspian, five literal states, they can also be, use this corridor for their own uh, commercial ends as well. So crossing the Caspian, traversing Iran, going to South Iran in the Gulf of Oman, and then the Arabian Sea to the east, and then going all the way to India, to Mumbai, and then vice versa, from Mumbai to Southern Iran, crossing the, uh, the Caspian, and all the way to Northern Russia, let's put it this way. And also with the participation of, uh, of the Caucasus, uh, other Persian Gulf players can also use it. So, but in terms of increasing trade between Russia, West Asia, Iran, and South Asia, India, 
the, the international north-south transportation corridor is a major game changer. Of course, completely uh, uh, ignored by the US and by the Europeans as well. They have no clue what this is all about. It's major. And uh, in the next uh, two years, at least, lots of Russian investment, lots of Iranian investment. And for the, for the engines, it's absolutely essential as well because it will also involve a major trading port in southern Iran, the Shabahar port, which in the minds of the Indian uh, commercial establishment is their gateway to Afghanistan and then to Central Asia. So then we have an interaction via the International North-South Transportation Corridor between Russia, the Caspian, Iran, West Asia, uh, the Arabian Sea and India. And also we have a, a further interaction, India, Southern Iran, Shabahar port, Afghanistan, Central Asia. And when we connect this to uh, what's being done in parts of Central Asia in terms of uh, building roads and highways, I'll give you just one example, which most people in the world actually uh, are not aware of. There's going to be soon a railway between Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Uzbekistan. What this means in practice is another game changer. You're going to have a railway which will connect to railways coming from China and crossing the border in Kazakhstan and then going to the rest of Central Asia. Between South Asia, Pakistan, which is also part of a very, very special relationship with China. Uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, CPEC. CPEC is, happens to be the major plank of the Belt and Road Initiative, BRI, which is not only the most important uh, trade corridor sustainable development project of the 21st century, but it also happens to be the central plank of Chinese foreign policy for the 21st century. So uh, just... Uh, if you follow me this past 10 minutes, I think all of you can see how all of that is deeply interconnected. So we have expansion of BRICS, which mostly across Eurasia, but also uh, should include expansion in Africa, Algeria coming, Egypt certainly coming soon, uh, in West Asia with Saudi Arabia and the Emirates as very, very strong candidates. Latin America with Brazil uh, and Argentina closer, but Argentina because once again, no sovereignty in Argentina. Argentina is broke. Uh, they have to, they need money from the IMF as Michael knows very, very well. Uh, so obviously they had to announce only a few days ago in a very terse manner that they are postponing their request to be admitted into BRICS. So this is, this is, this is a, a terrible own goal by the uh, Argentinas, but there's nothing they can do at the moment. They are in an absolutely horrible financial situation once again. No wonder Argentina has probably one of the most uh, rapacious and disgusting elites in the, in, 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 in the whole of modernity. You know, Michael knows the story very well as well. So, BRICS, it's one of these fronts. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization is on a security front. They were a Shanghai Cooperation Organization was founded 
a few months before 9-11 in 2001. But then they evolved from a security organization into a commercial trade organization as well. So who do we have sitting on the same table at the SCO? This is immensely important. Not only Russia and China, which happens to be the two top powers on BRICS, but India, Pakistan, and now Iran. Iran was finally officially admitted as a member of, of, of the SCO practically a few days ago. So now we have, can you imagine on the same table, China, Russia, uh, Iran, Pakistan, and India discussing issues not only of mutual security and security across Asia, but also commercial partnerships. And that's where the SCO intersects with the BRICS and with, with the International North-South Transportation Corridor. Even if India and Pakistan, of course, they are on absolute opposite camps, uh, India wants its own Silk Road towards Afghanistan and Central Asia. And Pakistan already is on the Chinese Silk Road because of the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which is going to be expanded to Afghanistan. Afghanistan is going to be more or less incorporated into the China-Pakistan economic corridor. And at the same time, Afghanistan is going to be closer to Central Asia. This suits Chinese trade, but it also suits India trade. Different ways, different pathways, let's say uh, running in parallel, but uh, it's the same target. More interconnected uh, trade between all the major players in Eurasia. So then we have BRICS, SCO, Eurasia Economic uh, Union, uh, International North-South Transportation Corridor, the Belt and Road in it, Initiative B. We're going to have uh, a new BRI forum in Beijing later this year, probably going to be around October of November, where basically the Chinese are going to relaunch BRI. They have at least 130 nations as have joined BRI, are BRI partners of the Chinese. And they're going to announce a lot of new projects, uh, 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 many new streamlined projects, not as ambitious as, for instance, their investment of $60 billion in Pakistan, but localized projects all across the spectrum, and a lot of them in Africa, so, and some in Latin America as well. So all of that interconnect, and this is not the whole story, the Russians have their own concept for Eurasian integration, which uh, dovetails with all, all of those that we have mentioned so far. The Russian concept is called Greater Eurasia Partnership, which is something that was solidified basically by the end of 2018. Uh, when I was in Moscow at the time, it was basically when they, the project landed on Putin's desk and Putin gave his final approval. Uh, as a foreign policy concept and as a trade concept and as a concept to unite the whole of Eurasia, including the possible participation, if they wanted, of course, of the Europeans. At the moment, as we all know, this is absolutely impossible. But the Greater Eurasia Partnership is more or less what uh, Putin had already in his mind in 2007 when he made that famous speech at the Munich Security Conference. Let's have a free trade area from Lisbon to Vladivostok. The Russians are still thinking the same way. Obviously, for the moment, they cannot even dream of having cooperation with the Europeans because the Europeans basically are American vassals. 
as it stands. This may not be eternal, but it's still going to last for quite a while. And the Chinese, obviously, they were paying attention. And 10 years ago, in 2013, exactly this, this is the 10th anniversary, after a lot of elaboration by the Minister of Commerce, Xi Jinping announced first in Astana, Kazakhstan, and then in Jakarta, in Indonesia, the Belt and Road Initiative, which in the beginning was called Obor, One Belt, One Road, a bad English translation from the original Mandarin, which sounds great in Mandarin, but sounds horrible in English. Yidayilu. Yidayilu in, in, in Chinese, everybody knows what it means. One Belt, One Road in English, nobody knows what it means. So they changed to Belt and Road Initiative, which still most people don't know what it means. But at least now everybody understands the concept BRI, B-R-I. And the Chinese, of course, they launched a, a publicity campaign to uh, all, all across the global south, in fact, to, so people now immediately understand BRI as this trade sustainable development corridor uniting all over Eurasia, but extrapolating to Africa, Latin America, etc. So we have all these together, plus uh, the regional bodies that are now rediscovering their importance and rediscovering their realignment as well. Starting with ASEAN, the ASEAN 10, my former home. Uh, I, I moved from Europe to Southeast Asia in 1994, almost 30 years ago. And most of the time, my base in, uh, in Asia was Thailand. Uh, also Hong Kong, because it was my base close to China. So these were my two bases in Asia for almost 30 years. So I followed very closely everything that happened with ASEAN, as I was following a lot of stuff in, in China from Hong Kong as well. Um, and they are, they are now realigning themselves and knowing that the future for them is Eurasia integration. And that's why Russia in ASEAN is now much more powerful than they were uh, a year ago, to, pu to put it simply. The Southeast Asians want free trade deals with the Eurasia Economic Union, and they want more business with Russia. And with China, obviously, because the major partner of all uh, ASEAN 10 is China. So uh, China is ASEAN, ASEAN is China, and vice versa, right? Uh, nothing the Americans can do will destabilize the, this uh, commercial trade relationship between ASEAN and China. Uh, CELAC in Latin America, same thing. CELAC, they, they, they want a Mercosul uh, uh, un, a European Union deal, for instance, in terms of trade. But Lula said it uh, right away. Look, we, we badly want this deal, but we won't accept impositions by the EU. So uh, the EU agenda imposed on, on Latin America, especially on the big ones, Brazil and Argentina, part of, uh, part of Mercosul and also part of CELAC, it's not going to happen. And the Africans. The Africans are all getting together finally in many levels. Uh, commercial trade, because China invests in at least 32, 34, 35 uh, African nations. The Russians, the Russians are going everywhere across Central Asia. The Russians in that belt between Senegal in the West and Eritrea in the East, the Russians are going everywhere, not only in terms of uh, new business opportunities, but also in terms of uh, expelling the French from places that the Africans want to expel the French in the first place and the Russians give them a hand. So uh, that's the role of Wagner in many of these nations. Uh, don't forget that in all of these nations, uh, especially the Shad or Central African Republic, 
natural resources are extremely powerful and a magnet for Chinese interests, but also a magnet for Russian interests who, who can work in cooperation with all of them. So the whole situation in this belt in Africa is changing fast, just like it was changing in the Maghreb as well. And now with Algeria becoming part of BRICS, even more, and with Egypt on the, on the Horn of Africa, let's put it this way, also becoming part of, of BRICS. This is uh, uh, Eurasia integrations, integration process, more or less uh, uh, it's transmutation in Northern and Central Africa as well. And of course, to let, let's see, to this mini roundup, let's put it this way, the resurgence of the non-aligned movement, which we can say that nowadays, the neo-NAM non-aligned movement, he has at least 120 nations that are part of it. This is reflected uh, by the number of nations who simply decided not to join the anti-Russia sanctions dementia, either by becoming uh, by, uh, by declaring themselves neutral or by not doing anything, keeping a very low profile, but actually in the in the background, not dissenting from Russia and even approving the Russian position or at least understanding the Russian position. And that explains the uh, extraordinary <laughs> shuttle diplomacy by uh, Lavrov all over what we can describe as the neo-NAM. And Lavrov was always received as a rock star everywhere he went, no exceptions whatsoever. So when we look at all these acronyms, this acronym salad, in fact, and the way they are interacting and integrating, we see uh, the possible pathway towards a multipolar world. Uh, and Michael is arguably the number one um, uh, explainer of the whole process. Why is it happening and what multipolarity plans to achieve? So uh, I offer this to all of you as a sort of introduction to where we could go, considering the absolutely incandescent situation that we are now at the moment. But for the first time in, in I would say, postmodern history, we have a way out. Uh, and it's up to all of us to make this happen. Thank you very much, Pepe. That, that was really great, explaining the, well, the emerging uh, alternative block. Um, uh, uh, and which sounds like it will be one of trade, development, and growth. Um, and and I'll come back to some questions specifically about about uh, the uh, I, I guess some of the interlinkages there uh, within that that block, which will which is covering Eurasia, Africa, and uh, other countries in the world. Um, but first, I'd like to go to Michael, and uh, whose I think economic analysis underlies, um, well, explains why the world is splitting into these two blocks. And in the destiny of civilization, uh, Michael explains that there's an underlying conflict of economic systems. And Michael's touched upon it briefly in his talk, but I was wondering if, if Michael, you could elaborate on the differing economic philosophies underlying the two camps, the, the emerging Eurasian, 
um, multipolar camp and then the, the US-centered camp, um, maybe touching upon, touching upon how that arose and what are the real economic effects of the differing philosophies. Well, I'm not sure that uh, bombing another country and uh, having a color revolution is a philosophy. Uh, <laughs> but the, the point that uh, Pepe and I have made and Radiker have made are so obvious that you'd think that uh, there'd be some discussion of this and recognition uh, of this uh, in the United States and in Europe. Uh, but there's no discussion of this at all. Uh, in the United States, every day, we read in the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal how Ukraine is beating uh, Russia. Ukraine is destroying the Russian army. And uh, the mop-up is going to just finish. And by the end of uh, this year, Ukraine will have defeated Russia and it will uh, w uh, withdraw. Uh, that's a fantasy. Uh, the similar uh, way is uh, uh, the United States said, well, uh, we're, everything that Pepe has described is uh, just a, a fantasy and we can block it. So since uh, Pepe's just uh, uh, been describing the way forward, um, I think I should describe the way backward uh, because that's the plan that uh, the United States uh, has. Uh, and it's obviously trying to say there is such a thing as an empire of the whole world. There is such a thing as uh, uh, a uh, one country uh, dominating others. Uh, and my book, Superimperialism, uh, explained how the United States thought that it was going to create uh, a global empire and what it's trying to do to prevent everything that Pepe's just been describing from taking place. Well, the first kind of empire that uh, uh, has been created throughout history has been military. Uh, you conquer a country, you occupy it, with your own troops, you put in your own uh, people's leaders of, to overlayer the domestic population, much like uh, the Norman conquest of England brought uh, uh, the, the French Normans uh, in, in place with an, a layer of ruling class, or much like the United States uh, installed uh, client oligarchies in Latin America, especially Argentina, uh, as Pepe's uh, pointed out. Uh, but America can't have a military empire anymore, uh, as we've described, because it doesn't have any, uh, any military uh, uh, power uh, to do it. it. It is relying entirely on being able to hire mercenary armies uh, or uh, foreign armies like uh, Ukraine. Well, the second way to create an imperial power was economic power. And uh, that is what, uh, how America emerged from World War I uh, when it uh, insisted that the Allies had to pay America for the arms that it had supported, uh, supplied before America's entry into the war. And that made the uh, Allies turn on Germany uh, to pay reparations so they could pay their inter-Allied debts to the United States. Uh, and the United States uh, ended up uh, bankrupting Europe, ca causing a uh, depression that led to uh, Europe's gold flowing to America in the 1930s. And after World War II, Europe was devastated. And once again, uh, the United States was in a position not only to supply the arms and was in a military position over Europe, uh, uh, comparable to Russia's military uh, position over uh, Central Europe and uh, its sphere. Uh, but uh, the United States uh, was able to supply money. Uh, and by the time the Korean War broke out, 
by 1950-51, uh, 75% of the world's gold supply was in the United States. So the United States, by, an, uh, by organizing uh, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to uh, promote uh, American interests with the economic philosophy that countries should not uh, uh, base their uh, diplomacy on national security, they should not try to uh, be independent and produce their own food. They must depend on American agriculture for food. And uh, uh, they should not support uh, family farming. Uh, and they should fight against land reform throughout Latin America, uh, which is why the United States overthrew the Guatemalan government in 1953 uh, and uh, imposed an oligarchy and did the same throughout uh, all of Latin America. Uh, Paris, Jimenez in uh, Venezuela, uh, a coup to overthrow uh, Kubitschek in Brazil, uh, the, uh, the, the coups throughout uh, those countries. Uh, other countries were dependent on the United States financially and through the dollar standard, through uh, finance became the uh, new form of imperial warfare to control countries financially instead of by uh, a military army. But now the United States seems to have uh, run out of money. Uh, the Vietnam War forced and military spending forced America off gold in 1971. Uh, and gold had been the way in which it was controlling other countries. Uh, so uh, you have a situation now where uh, the United States uh, seems to have lost its, its uh, economic power. It's uh, the United States government itself is the largest international debtor. And there is no way in which the United States can pay the money that it owes foreign central banks for their dollar holdings. What can, uh, how can the United States cope with this? What is the, the road backward uh, going to look like? Well, America can simply say, well, uh, we can, uh, we're not going to let you use your dollars to buy uh, major American companies uh, because uh, national security grounds uh, mean that uh, you can be, uh, cannot be dependent, uh, independent. Uh, we can be independent of you, but you cannot take over our, our uh, uh, industry. We forced Latin America and the rest of the world to sell off their oil and their mines and their uh, public infrastructure and their railroads and their water systems to America. Uh, but uh, you cannot uh, take over these uh, things uh, for ourselves. Well, uh, how are the American uh, foreign countries uh, going to uh, cope with uh, this? Uh, Germany, a few years ago, asked for uh, its gold uh, to be uh, returned. Yeah, because of uh, the 1930s the only, uh, and the war, other countries had uh, kept their gold supply for safekeeping in the Federal Reserve uh, of New York in the basement. America's gold is in Fort Knox, but foreign countries' gold is in the foreign reserve. But uh, America told uh, Germany, uh, well, I'm sorry, we can't give you uh, the gold. Uh, we've already hypothecated it. We've used this gold. We've, we've tried to keep down uh, the, uh, uh, the price of gold so that uh, we can prevent other countries from ever using gold to limit America's military spending abroad. The way backward is going to be based on America's 800 military bases that it's uh, surrounded China and Russia and Asia uh, and uh, Latin America with. Uh, but paying this money 
involves a balance of payments deficit and America can spend dollars. Other countries are asked to accept these dollars uh, that are thrown off by America's surrounding them militarily. And other countries are supposed to use these dollars to lend to the United States by putting their money in US treasury securities uh, that uh, fund the domestic uh, military uh, budget deficit itself. That's the American philosophy of, of circular flow. Uh, but now it, it turns out that when uh, other countries receive the dollars, there's nothing it gets for them. It can't get American gold because America, apparently, uh, to keep down the price of gold, to prevent other countries from using gold is an alternative to the dollar, to prevent other countries from forcing America to pay for its military spending by losing its gold supply. It's taken European countries' gold. It's, uh, it's uh, lent uh, the ownership to uh, uh, private gold dealers to sell to private gold buyers. And there's, uh, the, the European gold is no longer European gold. It's been all sold off. It's, uh, it's the equivalent of empty. So uh, not only uh, has America just uh, grabbed all of Russia's uh, uh, international reserves that are held in the West, its bank reserves, its uh, financial holdings, uh, its uh, bond holdings. Uh, but uh, in effect, uh, it's done the same to uh, Europe and Asian countries. If uh, they've uh, decided to leave their gold in the West, America can say, I'm sorry, it's not there. Uh, Venezuela's gold was just uh, seized by the Bank of England uh, and turned over to uh, a leader uh, elected by the United States uh, CIA. Uh, and uh, that deprived Venezuela of using its gold to import uh, medicines and to import uh, basic things. So uh, the uh, United States has lost its military power. It has no financial power. Uh, it is uh, a paper tiger financially, as well as militarily. Uh, and the only tactic it's left with are the sanctions to say, don't trade with Russia and China. And uh, the only people who've adopted these sanctions are the NATO satellites uh, that essentially, uh, by adopting the sanctions against uh, uh, Russia and China, uh, Europe is out of the picture. So uh, here you have uh, the way forward that Pepe has just been describing, uh, putting in place uh, a, a, a multilateral policy of mutual uh, growth. And you have the American policy of shrinking. And uh, the problem is uh, that the United States is uh, so heavily debt laden, not only internationally, but domestically, that uh, it's it's deindustrializing. It has become completely dependent on uh, Eurasia. How on earth can it uh, achieve its uh, economic dominance if it it does it's not military power, it's not financial power, it's not uh, supplying uh, technology. The only thing that the United States can think of is uh, what it calls economic rent, uh, monopoly rent. Uh, intellectual property rights. Now, it's hoping that there's one way to control other countries. And if the United States can concentrate all uh, uh, high technology computer chips, uh, computer uh, planning in the United States, then it can charge a huge excess price. 
uh, monopoly price to other countries, just like if the United States can control pharmaceuticals uh, and uh, medical technology. It can uh, uh, produce uh, pills for uh, a, a penny a piece and sell it for a thousand dollars a piece. It's, it wants to do the same thing in terms of uh, uh, computer chips. And that's why the United States is uh, telling uh, its allies, or I should say its satellites uh, in Europe, don't uh, use the five generation of Huawei uh, technology uh, because that's uh, Chinese. You have, just like you're depending on America for your high cat cost uh, gas and oil uh, and fertilizer, you it must depend on America for the high cost, uh, less efficient tech, uh, computer technology. Somehow uh, it's asking the rest of the world not to go forward. Uh, and uh, the whole ph philosophy is uh, looking backwards, not forward, looking backwards to think that, well, uh, America uh, and NATO are the garden, uh, the rest of the jungle, let's keep it a jungle. Or uh, the, the American plan, of course, was to clear cut the, jun the jungle, uh, to do what uh, 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 Lula's predecessor was doing in the Amazon. Cut it, cut down the, the rainforest. Cut it all down. You uh, uh, put uh, put uh, grazing land there uh, to grow beef and uh, uh, animal uh, food for the Americans uh, to grow crops uh, to grow other things. Uh, the 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 way backwards is really all the way back to the kind of society that uh, the, uh, Europe had under feudalism with an uh, an. Uh, a foreign ruling class. In this case, the Americans uh, would have a client oligarchy, uh, especially in Argentina and uh, Brazil, uh, owed to the United States. And the United States now is still trying to use uh, the last lever that it has of foreign denominated debt uh, owed to the United States uh, that was entailed by uh, Latin America, Africa, and Asia uh, in the last uh, 70 years. And uh, the United States says, well, uh, you can try to develop uh, uh, in the BRICS uh, in the way that uh, Pepe's described, but uh, you have to pay us first. You have to pay this enormous dollar debt. Uh, so uh, one of the things that the BRICS cannot achieve what Pepe has described until it realizes that uh, the debts that it had are part of the legacy of America's financial colonialism. And just like uh, uh, Europe and uh, just like uh, uh, Latin America and Africa broke away from colonialism after World War II. Now that uh, America is trying to start World War III, uh, it's time for these countries to break away from financial uh, uh, colonialism. That's America's philosophy. All debts have to be paid regardless of how this may distort the domestic economy. By saying all foreign debts have to be paid, America is saying that uh, we reject the philosophy of economic sovereignty that uh, in Europe uh, was created in 1648 uh, after the Thirty Years' War. Other countries cannot be sovereign as to their own monetary policy uh, because foreign debts have to come over and above uh, using uh, finance and banking to support their own uh, economic growth. Uh, and foreign countries have to uh, uh, be uh, reliant on the United States for their agriculture and for their oil. Uh, the, they have to uh, rely on the uh, international oil industry, which is centralized in America uh, and Europe through uh, uh, the Americans, uh, the Seven Sisters, uh, 
British petroleum, uh, the, the French uh, uh, oil, uh, so that if we can, if America can control the world energy and oil supply, if it can control the world uh, uh, agri uh, food supply by blocking food exports from uh, Russia and, and Ukraine, by blocking uh, energy import, then it will have other countries by the throat. That's the American philosophy, that it feels very insecure if uh, uh, it cannot control other countries. Uh, uh, and uh, so for America, uh, shifting to uh, looking at world trade in terms of national security means uh, other countries giving up their national security to be, become dependent on the United States. These are the two philosophies that are facing the world. Either uh, the world is under their own government control uh, or uh, under uh, American control. Well, Amer uh, President Biden again and again has said, this is the contrast between democracy and uh, autocracy. Uh, Amer he's defining America as a democracy, meaning America has the democratic right to overthrow other countries, to have the color revolution, to install Nazism in uh, the Ukraine, uh, to overthrow, uh, uh, to put sanctions on other countries. Uh, that, uh, but uh, if you look back in time, uh, the, I just published uh, another book, uh, The Collapse of Antiquity, Throughout history, uh, democracies have not been very good at promoting national, uh, uh, promoting economic growth. Uh, democracy leads to oligarchy, uh, and the oligarchies take over the democracy and turn into uh, an autocracy. But uh, what America calls an autocracy are China, Russia, and the BRICS countries that uh, want to use the government uh, instead of letting their economy be planned by the bankers, especially international bankers. They want economies to be planned by their own governments. That's called autocratic uh, because it's uh, self-government uh, as opposed to dependency. Uh, so you, you realize that uh, what seems to be an Orwellian vocabulary, actually, is, uh, are other countries going to be self-reliant, uh, self creating their own future, or are they going to let American planners through the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the International Criminal Court, uh, and uh, uh, a, uh, a United Nation whose agencies have been captured uh, by the United States. Uh, uh, the, uh, what, what the BRICS have to do, is, and it won't be done at the, con the co upcoming conference that Pepe described, they're going to have to create a new alternative to the World Bank that's not an agent, an arm of American imperialism, a new alternative to the International Monetary Fund uh, and their own means of uh, settlement of balances uh, among themselves. Uh, Pepe has noticed the problem with Argentina and why Argentina uh, cannot join the BRICS. Uh, China had made a currency swap uh, with uh, Argentina, just like it's made with other countries so that they can trade in their own currencies. And Argentina has used these, uh, uh, these uh, RMB to pay the IMF uh, for the debt that it should have repudiated. Uh, and the fact is that uh, for much of the global South uh, in uh, trying to join the BRICS, this will entail a revolution. There is no way it can occur without a revolution because the current governments of Latin America have been put in place by a revolution, by an American 
coup d'etat. So we're, we're back to the fact that uh, although empires can no longer be achieved militarily, uh, uh, the break away from the empire and the, uh, the uh, creating the new economic philosophy of self-government instead of oligarchy is going to be revolutionary uh, and is, is going to uh, uh, involve some degree of force because uh, in uh, Argentina especially, uh, after the overthrow of uh, uh, the Ch Chile's government by Pinochet, there was a whole terrorist, uh, a decade of terrorism and assassination throughout Latin America, especially in Argentina, to install what we can say the current revolutionary government. Uh, that was, uh, uh, and the government was supported by enormous loans by the International Monetary Fund, not to develop Argentina, but to underdevelop it, to, to finance its dependency, to create a client oligarchy that would prevent Argentina from joining uh, the emerging uh, bricks and Belt and Road and the, uh, the other parts that Pepe's described. This is, uh, this is the road backward. Uh, and I think it's important to understand the road backward and why, uh, how the United States, which has nothing left, uh, is going to try to, uh, uh, to, uh, to cope uh, with the world. And uh, my, my belief is the only country that uh, area of the world that it'll continue to control uh, is Europe, uh, which uh, is not even permitted to become American states and be represented in the American Congress and Senate. Uh, the, the rest of the world economically will survive, but uh, it uh, is, is going to involve some degree of violence as uh, Latin America and Africa try to join the BRICS. What do you think, Pepe? Couldn't agree more, Michael. <laughs> That's it. You put, you put it in 15 minutes. It's all there. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> well, now we can see what other... Is, is there's nothing well, we, you would like to add, Pepe, to, to Michael's? Look, we could add uh, a lot of detail, of course, but um, uh, I'm deeply worried by um, divisions and dissent inside this uh, multilateral organizations, especially mm. BRICS. Uh, I had some serious discussions about that with uh, Russians and Italians. The Italians, obviously, uh, academics, dissident, but extremely well informed, and Russia's, uh, and in Russia, basically economists and financial analysts, and, and people who know, especially the, uh, the relationship between the RIC, Russia, India, China. It's very complicated because essentially Russia is in the uh, middleman position. And uh, in, in terms of Putin, uh, Xi, and Modi, Putin tries always to act as a bridge between uh, Modi and Xi. And at their level, the levels of uh, ministerial levels of all of them. But uh, uh, the, the Indian establishment and many uh, of uh, Modi's party, which is basically a Hindu nationalist party, uh, they simply don't understand that there's enough space for both India and China in building the multipolar world. Uh, it's, it's a neither or situation. And because Pakistan is an ally of China, from the point of view of Indian intelligence and security establishment, this is a, it's a, it's a no, no. So China supports our lethal enemy. So then you, we cannot have a full dialogue with China. And this is bullshit, it's possible. They don't want it simply. 
And obviously, there, there are many other psychological factors, uh, recent historical factors, the fact that a lot of uh, this, uh, even this new elite or establishment has an enormous inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis the Brits. They haven't solved their rash psychological problems. So, so at the, uh, uh, from a Russian point of view, to be in the middle of all that, it's, uh, it's very complicated. But as you know, the Russians have arguably the best diplomatic corps on the planet, and they try hard, and um, it, it, it's possible. But uh, if you don't solve this internal BRICS and SCO problems, or that matter first, it's going to be very hard to organize this uh, uh, interconnectivity of multilateral uh, plurinational organizations. Uh, uh, the, the roadmap, like no, this, this train has left the station already, but uh, people are still <laughs> trying to find their seat. You know, some people, oh, they're gonna throw us out of the train any minute. So it's a very complicated story. So, mm -hmm. so I think this is the, and the fact that you have to unify uh, visions, that are complementary, but of course there are possible shocks between Russian oligarchs and the Chinese businessmen, for instance. They have not exactly the same uh, uh, vision ahead. Uh, even if the governments are aligned, even if Putin and Xi and the ministry are aligned, doesn't mean that businessmen in Russia and China are aligned. I, I heard a lot of serious criticism of China in Russia, for instance. So, uh, and the fact that uh, the country, the weak nodes, South Africa and Brazil, for instance, uh, it's impossible to have more uh, uh, increased BRICS unification when, when you have such weak nodes as part of the mechanism of decisions. And if we bring, if BRICS brings in uh, hypothesis, Iran, uh, Emirates, Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kazakhstan. That's a very interesting shift because the, the, the power shift within BRICS will, will go full Eurasia. BRICS will become basically Eurasian uh, unifying mechanism. And these weak nodes, Brazil and South Africa will be more marginalized in the decision process. And even if we have more from Africa or from Latin America, it's still there will be minor players. So this internal divisions are extremely problematic. This is something that doesn't happen. Uh, for example, in the Eurasia Economic Union, okay, Russia makes all the major decisions, but there is a consensus, you know, always. And even the smaller uh, players like Kyrgyzstan, they are part of the decision process as well. But even within uh, a small organization like that, that uh, there are problems, for instance, uh, Kyrgyz uh, immigration, undiscriminated immigration towards Russia. A lot of people in Russia completely disagree with that, but they need the Kyrgyz and the Tajiks as cheap uh, workforce, just like Europeans need uh, people from the Maghreb. It's cheap workforce and easily available. So if you don't solve these internal problems, it's gonna be very complicated. But the key problem once again is uh, the new currency or uh, the, the different ways that Eurasia Economic Union and now the BRICS, a very incipient stage, are trying to, okay, we're going to have uh, 
We're going to start with different payment systems. Are we going to unify our payment systems, which is something that they should have started yesterday. They are already thinking about it, but it's not done yet. Unifying alternative, alternative payment systems from Russia, China, and Iran, for instance. Then you bypass SWIFT easily. Uh, it's not done yet, but, uh, and when they tried for, for a, a very simple example, last year uh, in, uh, in Turkey, in summer, there are a lot of Russian tourists using Mir cards in uh, Istanbul. And then the Americans, they swooped in uh, the Turkish and told Turkish banks, stop it right now. So now the Turk Turkish banks and Russian banks are trying to find a, a parallel mechanism that would be possible to use uh, Russian mirror cards. Uh, you can use a mirror card, for instance, in Uzbekistan, very easy. But that's different, Central Asia. You can use a mirror card in Cuba. Isn't that, isn't that cool? But this is part of uh, a separate uh, free trade deals between Eurasia Economic Union and countries outside of Eurasia. So uh, proliferation of these trade deals is essential. Iran, for instance, Iran is being integrated into Eurasia via their, deals, their bilateral deals with Russia and with China at the same time. And if they, if they have a, a bilateral trade deal with the Eurasia Economic Union for Iran, it's excellent because then they will be covered, let's put it this way, by both Russia and China. So, so the internal problems are, much, sometimes they seem to be even more intractable compared to the external problem, which is basically NATO vassals. Um, if uh, Eurasia integrates in a very uh, dense way, a network of integration with all these multilateral organizations, uh, NATO will be something very, very far away you know, won't be able to interfere in what they do. Even if they come up with this absolute nonsense of uh, NATO basically uh, <laughs> considering the Indo-Pacific to be European territory. So it's not North Atlantic uh, um, uh, organization. Now, now it's North Atlantic and Indo-Pacific organization. It's a joke, you know. So basically it's another way of saying that NATO is the global this is a term that I have been using for the past 15 years, at least. The global Robocop is NATO. And it is the global Robocop. Uh, they just cannot say it out loud. But the global South, which now is being referred to correctly as the global majority, this is something that diplomats from Russia and China are using now on an everyday basis. It's the global majority. And Lukashenko from Belarus coined the beautiful new term, the global globe. Isn't that, isn't that fantastic? Actually, it's the global globe. And because it's 87, 88% of the, the global population, which is in favor of multipolarity. And we have the 12% recalcitrance, the empire and its closed Western vassals, which are being swept uh, into, by themselves, by the way, into the dustbin of 21st century history. Thank you very much, Pepe. I think, I think you, you direct, directly answered um, one of the questions. I, I'm not sure if you okay. saw it, but you-, you, you, I, I, you I, saw, I saw the questions, yes. Uh, ah, yeah, a question came in from, we've got a few questions which we might move to now, but one came in That'll from, be good, yeah. From let, Otto, let Otto, but I think you answered it directly, a, a guy called Otto Heim. Yes, and, I saw that, yes. Okay, yeah. 
Terrific. Yeah. And I think you've just answered it, which and the ability of the US and its allies to undermine the emerging anti-imperialist world. Um, and, but I think you've just answered that. So thank you, Otto, for the question. And thank you, Pepe, for answering it. Um, I'm not sure. I'll just go to the start. There's a there's a big, big picture question, which I think Michael has touched on as well, but I might ask it. It comes from the Chinese audience, so I'll just put it to Michael. Um, from Zhao Tianyu, apologies for my pronunciation. Um, Professor Hudson, you had in previous talks discussed the relationship between wo the world situation and revolution. Uh, you've talked a little bit about revolution, but perhaps you could elaborate upon this. The United States has uh, itself been the main, uh, I won't say revolution, I uh, could say counter-revolution, or the main uh, uh, use of violence uh, domestically in its meddling. Uh, you've seen it, uh, what it's done in Lib Libya when uh, Gaddafi wanted to uh, move away from the dollar and create an African gold uh, currency. The United States and NATO uh, especially France, uh, uh, just not only destroyed Libya, but physically tortured when, uh, uh, Gaddafi in the process of killing him. Uh, same thing uh, in Iraq, when uh, the uh, American takeover of Iraq uh, is, is still there. The Americans are, have been asked to leave Iraq, but they are still uh, taking, stealing Iraq's oil, just as they in uh, Syria. They're stealing uh, Iraq's oil. There's no way in which uh, you're going to be able to overthrow the, uh, the Argentinian and Latin American governments that came to power by subversive uh, uh, coup d'etat without uh, a, a similar revolution. Uh, the, the United States has, it's the, the only tactic the United States has left uh, is something that uh, the NATO agreement, NATO meetings in, uh, 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 last week and Americans agreed on, democracy is fascism. Democracy is, Nash is uh, Nazism. You cannot have an American style philosophy, a democracy, unless you're willing to assassinate all political threats uh, to this, uh, just like the Americans uh, uh, killed uh, President Kennedy, just like uh, they've uh, killed leaders throughout Latin America, just like they killed Allende uh, uh, in Chile on the theory that uh, just because if a country votes against democracy for a socialist, then of course they have to be killed. Uh, there, uh, it is going to come uh, into a kind of a street fight. Well. The problem is that this is this is a domestic military fighting, domestic revolutionary violence. Uh, the the Americans can't use an overall uh, military attack uh, uh, any longer because the arm, American arms, as we've just seen in Ukraine, they're not the tanks and the missiles and the airplanes uh, and help are not made for actually fighting in wars. They're made to uh, em employ American labor and make enormous profits for the military industrial complex to sell to foreign countries uh, uh, to absorb the dollars that they've received from selling their oil and uh, uh, raw materials and uh, 
other goods uh, uh, to the United States. So uh, it's like uh, uh, in America, there's a market for rare wines, 50-year-old wines that age very well. Uh, and many of these wines, when they're 50 years old, uh, they turn a little bit to vinegar. They're not wines for drinking. They're wines for trading. That same thing with America's military uh, arms. They're not arms for fighting. They're, they're arms uh, uh, for trading to other countries as a kind of trophies uh, to parade with. But uh, war is not a parade. Uh, that, uh, that's the problem. So uh, you, you, you won't have a revolution in the sense of uh, the, uh, what you had, the fighting in Vietnam uh, uh, in, in the 60s. Uh, but what you will have is uh, domestic police states. Uh, America says you cannot have a democracy without a police state. And the police state has to do uh, domestically what it did in Guatemala, uh, what it did in other Latin American countries. Uh, you have to, uh, if you're not willing to assassinate the labor leaders like you did in Chile, if you're not willing to close down every economics department in the country that does not uh, teach uh, neoliberal uh, Chicago school monetarism as they did in Chile, if you're not willing to kill all the socialist leaders as they did in Chile, then you can't have democracy American style. Uh, if you're not willing to do what uh, uh, the uh, Zelensky did in uh, Ukraine, if you're not willing to ban all uh, political opposition parties that want to be independent, if you're not willing to assassinate uh, uh, all uh, uh, potential uh, leaders ag against uh, the United States, then uh, you're not going to have American-style democracy. So uh, the, it's quite likely since uh, the police of these countries have been put in place by their client oligarchies, uh, you may need uh, uh, a domestic uh, alternative, you may, you may need international uh, support uh, for this revolution. In other words, we're way back to the situation that uh, Russia found itself in after the 1917 revolution. Uh, and uh, that uh, already uh, uh, President Xi of China made a uh, proposal uh, in a speech a few a week ago saying that uh, China thinks that uh, there should be political parties throughout uh, the BRICS, throughout all of its allies, to represent them, uh, the kind of world that uh, China's sponsoring. So far, there's no ideology for these parties. There's nothing like the common turn, the communist international that at least had a very explicit uh, uh, ideology. Uh, the BRICS have to have their own economic model uh, and their own economic statistics and their own uh, uh, their own kind of, we won't call it the Peace Corps. We could, they could call it the Peace Corps, but it will be a Peace Corps that's militarized with the responsibility to protect its allies from do, uh, domestic uh, oligarchies until finally you will drive out the Argentinian oligarchy, the Brazilian oligarchy, and the others uh, because they are incompatible with uh, the, the, the way forward. We're talking about really the ending of post-feudalism, the ending of imperialism, the ending of colonialism uh, throughout uh, the global globe. And uh, it, it's going to entail some degree of physical uh, fighting uh, uh, as uh, the existing uh, vested interests don't want to give up uh, uh, without a fight. And the funny thing is, is that exploiters who are uh, grabbing society without playing a productive 
productive role. They're willing to use violence. So far, the people who are actually being exploited have been much less willing throughout history uh, to, uh, uh, to use violence. But now they have to use violence in self-defense because uh, all that America has left is uh, color revolutions, uh, assassination, and uh, 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 meddling by the kind of political violence that it's been using for the last half century in Latin America and other countries. You actually, one of the you, you points you raised, it's uh, drawn me to some questions from uh, Simon Heim. Um, and you, you've kind of answered it, but well, no, you, had, you didn't directly answer it. So I'm gonna ask the question. You mentioned that, <laughs> that um, American weapons are, uh, are built for selling, not for fighting with. Um, one of the questions that Simon has is, has neoliberal deindustrialization also affected the US arms industry? Uh, well, uh, there, 50 years ago, uh, my uh, friend uh, Seymour Melman coined the term Pentagon capitalism. Uh, and uh, the way uh, Pentagon capitalism uh, means the way that uh, uh, military uh, firms have economic contracts with the United States government. Uh, how do you make a market in tanks and in, uh, uh, in submarines and battleships and uh, airplanes? Uh, the U US government said, well, it's cost plus. Uh, you will, uh, whatever it costs you to make the F-16 plane or the other, uh, we will reimburse you for the cost of production and give you a 10% profit uh, on it. Well, what this means is that uh, if you're Raytheon or another com company, uh, you want to make your arms as expensive as possible. Uh, the, the, uh, in America, there was a, a scandal over the fact that they charge uh, $500 for a toilet seat. Got to be very lightweight to toilet seat and all that. There's, a, there's a, no kind of co uh, market competition. Uh, Pentagon capitalism means uh, you make the, you, you uh, design the F-16 and the aircraft to be the most expensive, highest cost aircraft uh, that you can make, regardless of its military uh, fighting power. Uh, again, it's, uh, uh, the objective is to uh, make as expensive a trophy as possible to sell to Saudi Arabia and the Arab countries and countries in the uh, Germany and countries that are running uh, a uh, trade surplus, uh, providing dollars with them to uh, expend on these arms as a way to uh, maintaining uh, balance. So uh, yeah, that, uh, that's basically, uh, uh, it, it, you could say Pentagon capitalism is not industrial capitalism that's based on uh, price competitiveness and lowering uh, the cost of production in order to capture markets uh, by underselling competitors. Uh, you want just the opposite. You want to maximize costs of production, not minimize them. Okay, thank you. And Simon's uh, Heim's got a, another couple of questions, and I've just realised that he has the same surname as Otto Heim. So I'm assuming we've got two brothers asking, or two relatives asking questions. But maybe for Pepe, and I, I think we've probably answered this, but I'll ask it again. Um, does the pressure to expand BRICS and other Eurasian organisation come from inside the organisation or from outsiders wanting to join? Or, or maybe it's both. Pepper. No, there's no, there's no pressure. There's, uh, there's enormous interest by nations from ac across the 
global south, global majority, global globe. So we have people calling uh, the, the BRICS secretariat every day, representing Argentina, Iran, Algeria, Turkey, Kazakhstan, uh, Emirates, etc. We want to be part Saudi Arabia. We want to be part of your club because they obviously realized, in fact, since I would say February last year, when the Americans launched those absolutely devastating sanctions against Russia, followed by the European vassals, and actually confiscated over $300 billion of Russian assets. Everyone in the world with, a, let's say, a, even a clone of a brain understood what that meant. So if we can do this with a nuclear superpower, we can do this to you, to anybody. So obviously everybody got the message from MBS in Saudi Arabia to CC in Egypt. The thing is uh, like Michael explained once again, perfectly, uh, economic financial ties with the international financial system, which is basically controlled by a bunch of gangsters. How are you gonna get rid of it? This is the key issue. You cannot, obviously, Number one issue is uh, you cannot uh, uh, think about multipolarity while you're trading with uh, the currency established by the hegemon, which is basically worth nothing. But there's also another thing. The international financial system is basically controlled by a bunch of banking gangsters who are part of or are intimately linked to or, in fact, control the hegemon. So, and then we're talking about BlackRock, for instance. We're talking about Vanguard, which is also an actionary of BlackRock. And we, do, we know who uh, BlackRock controls, but we don't know how Vanguard controls BlackRock. Who are the names? Uh, and Michael, correct me if I'm wrong. We don't know the breakdown of Vanguard uh, shareholders. So we don't know who are the names, families, corporations, et cetera, who actually control BlackRock and zillions of uh, corporations around uh, the Atlanticist sphere. So if we don't have this battle in place, you know, it's, uh, we already lost even before we began, because th this is the key, the key issue. Who controls the economy? Who controls finance? Who controls the international economic financial system? Uh, the fight is against these guys. Uh, states compared to these guys are details. Uh, and, and even the US compared to these guys, the US is basically a vehicle for these guys. Okay, we know some of them are part of the Great Reset, which is basically a Rockefeller invention. When the Rockefeller controlled Maurice Strong, uh, and and then Klaus Schwab, which is basically an, an asset promoted to this role of uh, uh, Dr. Evil as the head of the World Economic Forum. Um, uh, a, a horrible version of Dr. Evil at least had sense of humor. Klaus Schwab is worse than a robo, right? So, uh, and these guys dictate rules for the whole planet. They publish books detailing their rules and they assume that people, once they read the book and listen, they have to implement these rules because this was decided by a sort of, a, I would say, a cheap knockoff of a, a, a platonic, a self-elected platonic elite 
that argues that they have the right, a God-given right to rule the world and depopulate the world and uh, turn everybody into you want nothing, but you will like it. That kind of a nonsense. And this is very serious because it's uh, uh, it's announced at Davos. It, it's, it's announced at other spin-offs of Davos. It's on the front pages of mainstream media in the Anglosphere and uh, in the major newspapers in Europe. Uh, it's uh, it's there is an organized, uh, concerted campaign twenty four seven to make people uh, accept that uh, the the change of paradigm is going to happen and it's going to be conducted by these people, unelected, invisible and basically messengers of the real, real people that run the show who are always invisible. The people who run the show, they don't need the PR to go to Bilderberg or Davos and all. And all. They decide that behind closed doors among themselves. And, and this is not a conspiracy theory. This is how the world actually is being run. And, and of course, these people are completely protected from everything, especially because they are invisible, just like those invisible shareholders of Vanguard, you know. So to get to, to make these to make these people suffer, you have to come up with something that is really larger than life. Michael was talking about revolution, but it will have to be a globally concerted revolution to turn the whole system upside down. I don't see this happening anywhere near our immediate and even long-term future. It's easier for us to be hit by an asteroid than this happening soon or in, uh, in the near or even long-term future. What people organizing themselves can do in their own infinitesimal way, let's put it this way, is to undermine bits and pieces of the system here and there. And preferably in cons a concerted effort between different parts of the world. Uh, so if we have a different, uh, the Chinese example, let's say, of uh, how, how to invest in sustainable development, the Chinese themselves tell the rest of the world, don't copy our model, be inspired by different uh, facets of our model and use it for your own sustainable uh, development goals. So, so these examples are very, very useful. And, and the way pe uh, uh, economists and academics are trying to talk among themselves about, okay, how, do we go how are we going to get to this new uh, uh, multilateral or world or incipient new reserve currency? There are so many different ways uh, to get at it. It doesn't have to be only the BRICS way or the Eurasian Economic Union way. We can have a concerted effort and we can have independent economists and analysts from all over the world brainstorming on how to get there. And, and, and this is one of the things that uh, uh, are lacking at the moment. Uh, I would say some sort of, uh, let's, uh, let's put it this way, a popular think tanks all over the world, interconnected and working together trying to find practical solutions for uh, bypassing the international finance system, creating an alternative currency, uh, or in, in, in practical cases, unifying uh, alternative payment systems, which is something that the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians are working on already. So, 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 uh, so it's possible. Um, 
the, the umbrella concept is another world is possible, which is something that was uh, much discussed in the beginning of the 2000s, uh, parallel to the beginning of the war on terror. And then the concept disappeared. But basically the concept of another world is possible, is possible, uh, which is the absolute opposite of there is no alternative, Tina. Uh, that Tina, like Michael explained brilliantly, is the past. Uh, another world is possible is now and the future. So uh, the, the problem is to get all the players together, different languages, lost. We all know the problems, lost in translation, different languages, uh, how to adapt to, how to understand other cultures and think in terms of taking into consideration other cultures. So this means that the other is much more important than any subject. You have to understand the other. If you understand the other, you can collaborate with the other. Otherwise, like the, the Agamon does, the Agamon not only does not understand the other, but he dismisses the other as a barbarian. So obviously there is no dialogue between the hegemonic power and this jungle of mm. barbarians. So the, it's now time for the jungle to get together uh, like a, a new Noah's Ark of all those animals in the jungle getting together. And, it, and it's not because they want to overthrow the hegemonic tyrant, it's not that. It's just uh, by organizing themselves, they're going to show to the hegemonic tyrant, look, there is another world. Another world is possible. And we don't need you to dictate the rules to the way all of us live. Thank you. And Michael, we've, had a, we've got a question from Ivy Song um, in China. Professor Hudson, how do you look at Henry Kissinger's visit to China? What do you think his strategic objective is for the visit? Well, uh, Kissinger for years, uh, just like uh, Brzezinski, had said that the centerpiece of American uh, strategy should be to prevent Russia and China from coming together. Uh, and uh, that was the centerpiece of American planning all along. And the irony is that the United States that has driven Russia and China together just like it's driving all of the rest of the world together. So it's very funny, uh, the US and NATO uh, West uh, says there's no alternative, uh, but they actually believe this. It's one thing to tell other countries, it's not gonna work, there's no alternative, uh, but you'd think they'd have somebody uh, in their own think tank with plan B saying, well, if there is a, another alternative, what's it going to look like? Uh, I don't think they're listening to what Pepe and I are saying. Uh, when they're, uh, they really believe there's no alternative and uh, are, are fighting uh, against it uh, as, as well as they, uh, as they can. Uh, but uh, when it, uh, it come, uh, Pepe's right, you need uh, an international think tank. I think that's what global university is trying to do, being a think tank. I think the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences is trying to be a, a think tank. Uh, uh, but what uh, the think tanks really need is a staff of uh, technicians who will make uh, an alternative to uh, gross national product analysis, uh, the real economy analysis. How do you make a picture of uh, China's economy, Russia's economy, and uh, all of their allies' economy uh, that treats the finance, insurance, and real estate sector of finance capitalism as overhead, not uh, as part of the product? The Americans create uh, the uh, uh, financial charges as actually producing a product. 
when banks uh, charge interest and charge penalty rates. That's called providing economic services. Uh, the landlords are uh, add to economic product when they rent raise the rent. That's providing more of a rental service just by raising the rent. Uh, uh, the BRICS and China and other countries need to create their own picture of the economy. That's not an ideological, that, that is better than an ideological list of how we're going to be diff different. You want to actually show here is how economies really work, not the way that the West say that economies really work. Uh, they need a, a think, uh, think tank sort of like the Brookings Institution was in the 1930s uh, when it uh, produced studies of America's capacity to produce and to consume uh, before it became an, uh, a propaganda arm of NATO and uh, the, uh, the neocons. Uh, just like the neocons have put a lot of money into propagandizing uh, their, uh, the way they draw a picture of the world, uh, the BRICS and the others need their, their think tanks. And yes, uh, this has to be uh, uh, created and who's going to solve them and where will it be located? And can people work uh, uh, out of the office, you know, internationally, do they all have to come together? Um, you, uh, I think uh, one of uh, the University of Missouri at Kansas City graduates <clears throat> just uh, become the chief economist, the chief in UNCTAD, uh, in Addis Ababa. So uh, we're, we are having some uh, groups there, but really in order to have a think tank, you need an alternative to the United Nations, which uh, is uh, come under the control of the United States by wholesale bribery. I should have said that that's the other rule that the American have. You don't need a violent revolution if you can just bribe people. Uh, I got a call from a former treasury official uh, yesterday, a phone call. I'm just talking about how the United States has bribed foreign officials in order to, to buy their uh, pro-American uh, uh, control. You, uh, you, you need uh, a think tank of uh, economists that uh, uh, do not, are not going to win the Nobel Economics Prize uh, because uh, for uh, free market economics, but uh, real economists talking about reality economics with reality statistics uh, talking about showing how uh, what is really happening uh, with domestic economies and in the world economy, that's going to take a while uh, to put together. But once you put together that alternative picture of how economies really work, you don't need slogans. You don't need uh, principle. The principles are embodied in the empirical uh, statistical picture. And you can say, here, here is the damage that uh, the neoliberal rentier finance-based economy uh, is creating, and here's how economies look like without uh, uh, bank financing, siphoning everything off. We can actually measure uh, the economic rent. And in fact, what this would be is exactly what classical econ political economy was in the 19th century, uh, in the way from Adam Smith through Ricardo, through John Stuart Mill, through Marx, uh, through uh, Alfred Marshall, uh, the whole of classical free market economy was to isolate unearned income, to isolate economic rent, to say, we don't need this. And if you can show who's getting it, then you know what windows to close uh, to make a, a truly free market economy, a market free from parasites, free from uh, financial rentiers, free from landlords. That's uh, exactly what you need. Thank you, Michael. Okay, one for Pepe. Uh, this one's from yes. 
Fernando Castor, uh, what paths could Brazil and LA follow to try to break the cultural bond that has that had loved them to US cultural imperialism? Basically, I know, but basic. But well, I was born in uh, in Brazil, so uh, it's 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 part of my past a long time ago. But uh, I remember very well the elites. Uh, I grew up among them, so. Uh, if you don't get rid of those rapacious elites all across Latin America, it's absolutely impossible. These are among the worst comprador elites on the planet. Okay, there are some others who are as bad as them. Egypt, uh, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, you know, part, part, parts of Asia everywhere, all across Africa. But uh, these ones in Latin America, well, especially the Brazilians and the Argentinians, they are in a class by themselves, you know. Um, their dream basically is to be on a mansion in Miami, uh, obviously exploit the place where they are from and live abroad, of course, and, uh, uh, and exploiting workers in uh, the places where they were born. So they are the worst type of uh, traders. They are, uh, <laughs> they are the absolute opposite of real patriots all across the world, Russians, Chinese, uh, Persians, etc. So if you don't uh, modify this uh, mindset, I would say nothing can be accomplished, but this would be something that would last centuries even. Don't forget that these elites, they inherited uh, everything that happens in one of the most unequal regions on, on the planet, everywhere in Latin America for that matter, for the past uh, almost 500 years. How are you going to change that in uh, two or three generations? It's impossible. What you can have is uh, an educational system, which, by the way, is neglected everywhere, that could form critical elites, brand new critical elites. And of course, using parliamentary democracy, which obviously is uh, inefficient in many aspects. But if they somehow get to power, they can start to uh, change uh, uh, the relationships inside the system from within. But this is also a, an extremely long-term uh, process. Um, uh, everywhere you look in Latin America, especially in South America, which I know relatively well, it's, uh, you, you don't see that happening virtually anywhere. Uh, when, uh, when Lula was president in Brazil, his first two terms, he tried uh, the minimum at least, which is to bring a lot of people out of poverty. He was very successful at that. But he couldn't basically alter the way uh, the banking system in Brazil works, the way the ruling classes in Brazil exploit the rest of the country. Minimal adjustments, but nothing really substantial long-term. And then everything that happened afterwards, you know, it was backtracking badly. So, uh, uh, in Africa, wow, it's, it's even worse than Latin America, I would say. And maybe in parts of West Asia that could, um, uh, and I think specifically about Iran and Syria, if they, uh, Syria, uh, assuming they will be able to be uh, rebuilt with help from Russia, China, Iran, etc., and Iran, uh, now that they are reincorporated into, let's say, the Eurasian ethos, and they are recovering their rightful role as one of the great powers in Eurasia, 
Uh, but then we, we get into another problem, how to convince uh, the religious elite in Iran that they have to up their game. And they have to start for, for instance, understanding economics, which they don't. And that, that's a, another huge problem, you see. So, so you have not only cultural, uh, financial problems, economic problems, but cultural problems and religious problems all inter intertwined. But uh, once again, uh, if uh, we have to be, I cannot be a nihilist. Uh, I have to, uh, all of us, we have to tell our readers and followers and that, uh, yes, it's possible, it's long-term, but let's get down to business, always. You know? Otherwise, we might as well say goodbye and become ostriches or kill ourselves. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Uh, now, I've got another question, Michael, for you, another one from Simon Heim again. It was, I'm just going to it, uh, could you comment on the latest IMF debt payment by Argentina in RMB rather than USD? Yeah, uh, in the past, uh, uh, the IMF told Argentina to get the dollars by selling off its infrastructure. Uh, and it doesn't have any dollars. So uh, Ch China had made a, a currency Oops. swap and it's using uh, uh, what China had swapped. I don't think China's objective was to provide money to uh, uh, its allies uh, to pay the uh, IMF and America uh, bondholders. Uh, this is a, a real problem. Uh, there, uh, If you're going to go your own way, uh, you, you have to make a break from the legacy of dollar debt. You, uh, you need, in effect, a debt cancellation. Argentina's debt is odious debt. Uh, the uh, IMF staff said uh, this money was lent to IMF to support a vicious, brutal military dictatorship. There's no way Argentina can pay. This is an odious debt. The IMF staff resigned, and the IMF uh, promised no more Argentinas. And yet it has another Argentina again and again and again. The Americans installed a client dictator that said, uh, one of the characteristics of any state is the ability to create its own currency. But Argentina is not a state. We're going to use the US dollars. The US government will create our currency. And in order to obtain the dollars uh, to use for our currency, we will sell off our mineral rights, sell off our land, sell off our public utilities, and uh, tax labor uh, in order to uh, earn the dollars so that uh, uh, any uh, real country and real state would create its own currency and wouldn't have, have to pay. So uh, uh, Argentina is uh, made an agreement that not only would it use dollars, but all foreign debts would be uh, that Argentina had, the dollar debts, would be settled if there's a controversy and it couldn't pay by US courts, not by Argentina's courts, not by an international court, but by a court uh, run by uh, the judge that said uh, uh, any country's that have to be paid regardless of the of the uh, results. And uh, you had uh, Paul Singer uh, buy up Argentine's debt at 10 or 15 cents on the dollar and then demand full payment and tried to begin grabbing Argentina's assets abroad, including its uh, naval ships uh, and other things. This is uh, the, the kind of world that has to come to an end. And the only way it can be ended by is by a uh, rejection of the all debts owed 
to the IMF and the World Bank, these are odious debts. These were debts uh, under American occupation, not uh, to help the domestic economy. Uh, there has to be a, a uh, as long as the United States and NATO say, uh, there can be no alternative uh, and we will fight you uh, by promoting color revolutions and uh, all the other things that we've described. There has to be uh, a separation of uh, the global majority from the US NATO uh, and only after separation can they there be a reincorporation along fair and equitable lines described by the global majority as uh, the United States and Europe beg to rejoin since they have no longer their own industry, no longer their own agriculture, uh, and uh, no longer their own autonomy. Thank you, Michael. Um, I think we will move very shortly just to um, cover the, the Chinese edition of Destiny of Civilization, but there's one final question that I, from the audience, I'll just ask, and so, but just brief answers, and I, and I suspect um, we don't actually know what's going to happen. Um, but it, the, the question is from uh, Beatrice. My question: There will come a time when the U.S. will be unable to stop acknowledging that the war in Ukraine is lost. Uh, what response will come? and the press which bought this false and lying narrative uncritically. They'll declare that yeah. they won it. Very simple. Yes. They'll say exactly. we won. Yeah, we'll walk away. But before I leave, I would like to answer another question from the Chinese audience, which was uh, Kissinger's uh, visit to China. This is a very important question. Uh, and it dovetails to the, the previous question as well, which is the hegemon walking away from the mess in Ukraine. I think it's all interlinked. And I'm gonna try to tell you why uh, briefly uh, in uh, <laughs> less than seven minutes. Well, Kissinger is a real politic practitioner. He has nothing to do with those Straussian neocon cycles controlling US foreign policy at the moment, as Michael knows better than anyone. I'm talking about uh, in the background people like Robert Kagan, and on the foreground, that toxic trio of Sullivan, Blinken, and Nuland. So these people are extremely dangerous. They are real poison. And the problem is they control US foreign policy. Uh, I, I, I've been trying to say that in all my columns for the past, what, two years or so, that, that there is no Biden. Biden doesn't exist. Biden cannot find his way to the nearest toilet, period. And there are zillions of footage everywhere proving it. What exists is the Biden combo. And this combo is very, very dangerous. It includes, of course, uh, Sullivan, Nuland, and Blinken, includes the neocons in the background, includes people from the, the Clinton uh, machine, include people, includes people linked to Obama, etc. Uh, the problem is they organized and they invested in the war in Ukraine since 2014, and even before, as Nuland himself acknowledged on the record. We invested over $5 billion in the whole process. So 2014 was something that started way before. 
And we can we, we have many excellent analysis by Russian uh, Russian academics, especially saying that this war actually started 30 years ago. We, we should have a podcast only to, to try to explain why it started 30 years ago. Anyway, assuming 2014, neocons and the people from the Obama administration, by the way, the same people who organized the debacle in Brazil, which led to the impeachment of President Dilma and to put uh, President Lula in jail. This was all started by Obama's people or authorized by Obama's people, including Biden. And now that we know, thanks to Seymour Hersh, number one investigative reporter in the past 50 years in the United States, proving by his own deep state sources, this is not a conspiracy theory, that the bombing of the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines was organized by these toxic people, the Biden combo, right? So now that they see that the whole operation, including the devastating hybrid war, basically financial war against Russia, didn't work, they need a way out. As Michael just said, they need to walk out. How they're going to walk out? They are moving the goalposts. They are actually now announcing that the real war is against China, which is completely crazy. And I think we had, the, if you go to YouTube and you see an interview by Edward Lutvak a few days ago, I used it uh, in the column that I wrote this morning before I joined you guys. I was, I was writing a column linking Kissinger, Edward Lutvak, Brzezinski, uh, basically are the same actors, right? And that started with Kissinger in Beijing. So a real politic practitioner goes back to meet the new leader of China. Uh, 53 years after that famous 1971 visit by Kissinger when he met with Zhu Enlai, preparing Nixon's 1972 trip to Beijing. And obviously Xi Jinping was a, an active reader of modern history. He quoted that, of course, he, he said that explicitly because he knew he would be quoted by everybody in Chinese media, uh, that Kissinger is an old friend of China, that he, he came to visit uh, over 50 years ago. Da, da, da. When the Chinese tell you in front of you that you are an old friend of China, this is as serious as it gets. So the Chinese would never expect uh, Kissinger to backstab them. And Kissinger will never do that because Kissinger owns a lot of his prestige, deserved or not. That's another question. For many people, Kissinger is a guru. For many people around the world, Kissinger is a war criminal. That's another debate. The fact is, his prestige vis-a-vis -vis -vis the Politburo and the different uh, Chinese administrations is basically because of what he did 50 years ago when he met Mao in person. Well, so Kissinger went there as a, 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 okay, the last of the real politic practitioners, let's put it this way, and, and trying to bridge, okay, okay, let's let's try in some effort, individual effort, unofficial effort, like the White House said. The White House said he's not representing American government. So this was Kissinger as a private citizen, as a private individual and an old school diplomat, meeting with Xi and trying to explain to Xi what's going on in Washington, basically. And obviously Xi paid a lot of attention, just like Wang Yi paid a lot of attention. But this has nothing to do with what's really happening 
behind closed doors in Washington. And that was spelled out. The guy gave away the game by this interview by Edward Lutwak two or three days ago, when he said explicitly, the new script is a war against China, and obviously China is going to lose this war. He says that explicitly in the interview. It's something absolutely mind-boggling. As mind-boggling as he said, the problem is Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is not a Hitler. Xi Jinping is a Mussolini. It's all about posture. And the problem with the Chinese is that they, they didn't kill the bastard. I'm quoting. Lutwak said his own words. The problem with the Chinese is that they didn't kill the bastard. So when you have a guy who has been advised, he's a a very dangerous strategist. Lutwak is very capable, very competent. He's a very good strategist. His books on military strategy are excellent, by the way. So that's why he's very dangerous. This guy has been advising the Pentagon for five decades. So the guys in the Pentagon and the guys in the National Security Council, CIA types all over, they pay attention to Lutwak. And what Lutwak is saying in this interview is basically what's being discussed in the back rooms in the, across the Beltway. Let's prepare for the war on China. And meanwhile, we find, uh, Michael would say, some sort of moral victory no? in Ukraine. Let's walk away and then we, we proclaim a moral victory. After all, we are the hegemon. We get away with it. And then we concentrate everything on China. And an excellent example of all this maneuvering is that William Burns, head of the CIA, very good diplomat, very capable diplomat. He called Sergei Narishkin, the head of the SDR, Russian Foreign Intelligence. And basically, Burns proposed to Narishkin, let's try to find a deal to get out of this thing. It's fascinating. This is something that next month, I'll be back to Moscow late next month. I'm going to try to confirm in Moscow something about the real dialogue between Burns and Narishkin. So when we have the, the full uh, picture of why Burns called Narishkin and what Narishkin told Burns, we're going to have more or less the full picture of how the Americans plan to extract themselves from this war to concentrate on the war on China, as admitted you know, <laughs> in your face by Lutwak in this interview. Uh, so this was much more important than Kissinger's visit to Xi. Because Kissinger's visit to Xi was, as the American government said explicitly, it's unofficial and does not represent the views of the current American administration. This is what uh, uh, rational old school practitioners in, in the US would think in terms of uh, this war was unnecessary from the beginning and let's try to end it. And let's try not to antagonize China at the same time. But we're talking about rational people. This Strauss and Neocomp cycles, they are not rational. They are extremely dangerous. And this, these people must be fought by rational Americans. The problem is rational Americans don't have enough power to go against these people. So, so, so this is the, I would say this is the basic framework of the Kissinger visit to China. So the Chinese, obviously, they are sophisticated enough not to be fooled by the fact that an old friend of China was visiting the president of China nowadays. They have to be focused on what the, the people in the background in Washington are plotting against China, and they know it. So, you know, no secrets. <laughs>
we would like you to say a few words about the book and, and then we would like to um, give you some data on the uh, videos that we have been doing to um, uh, on your speeches and talks. Well, I think the publisher explained the book at the very beginning of this broadcast uh, pretty well. And uh, uh, everything we've been talking about uh, 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 during the last three hours has been describing uh, which way uh, the world will go. Uh, what choice are countries going to make? Are they going to uh, join the uh, United States uh, neoliberal garden? Or are they going to uh, uh, make the jungle where uh, all of the real growth uh, is occurring, not uh, the kind of uh, mowed white uh, grass lawn that Americans have in front of their house, but actual uh, crops and flowers and uh, the rest. Uh, I'm trying to explain how what is uh, what the West is today is not the industrial capitalism that made it wealthy and productive in the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, the, uh, the West has turned into uh, a neo-feudal finance capitalism uh, that is uh, predatory and destructive, uh, and it's destroyed the American and European economies themselves by financializing them and by what Margaret Thatcher did to England, followed by Tony Blair and uh, uh, the light touch uh, of uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, New Labor Party, which uh, uh, renamed itself the Anti-Labor Party, uh, as everybody wanted to be uh, essentially uh, uh, in the financial class. Uh, the, the world is dividing between uh, Europe and America declining as a result of finance capitalism and the rest of the world that doesn't have to follow this path, that doesn't have to decline uh, and can uh, develop its own uh, uh, pr uh, uh, principles as we've just been describing for the last three hours. <laughs> That's it, it's simple enough. Well, we have, or uh, actually we have uh, done uh... Uh, quite a long interview with uh, Professor Hudson uh, about the book. So it would be coming out uh, in the coming days. Uh, it would be edited and coming out in the coming days. So we would also like now to make a very quick presentation about the kind of um, uh, uh, videos we had been making, uh, which uh, uh, have uh, made uh, uh, Professor Hassan known among uh, a lot of Chinese audience. So uh, Ivy, uh, please turn on your camera and do the share screen. So good evening, everyone. I am Song Wei, the editor of the Alternative Perspective Program. It has been two years since our program started. So I would like to take this occasion to thank Professor Hudson for the wonderful content he has brought to our viewers over the past two years, and also Professor Jian Zhi, Dr. Yan, Yan Xiaohui, and Ashley for the organizing and planning, as well as the special thank you to the dozens of, of volunteers who help us the translations after proof, proof, proofreading and also Chinese dubbing. So Starting from the release of the first video of Professor Hudson's speech on August 24th, 2021 until July 7th of this year, the total number of the views of Professor Hudson's video on Bilibili was 8.52 million. 
in 2021, the total view is 1.68 million. Among them, the de-dollarized series was a uh, was a whopping 880,000. The views for 2022 is 3.19 million. Of those, we are the 99% reached 500,000 views. And this year, till July the 7th, the total number of views is 3.64 million, which means that the first half of this year has already had more views than the last year. Among them, the destructing GDP had uh, had uh, 730,000 views. The real estate debt issue had 660,000 views. The US bank crisis had 450,000 views and the Yellen series had 350,000 views. Next week, starting from next week, we will have we'll have an introductory series of uh, Professor Hudson's new book, The Destiny of Civilization, and we welcome you to watch them. Thank you. Thank you. And Ivy is uh, one of the two translators of the book uh, Destiny of Civilization into Chinese. And she's also the, the editor for the um, uh, videos uh, that uh, we have. So we will be sending you the links to the YouTube chat uh, that where we have uh, uploaded these videos. And so these videos uh, are uh, in with... Um, both Chinese and English subtitles. So, uh, so the publisher has already printed the books. They are already on sale, and our some of our audience were telling us they have already placed orders. So we hope that um, uh, there would be uh, more understanding uh, uh, of uh, the views that have been expressed tonight by Professor Hudson, and uh, that um, that there would be. Uh, uh, and we will be also uh, publishing more books of Professor Hassan in Chinese. So this is this is the first one on the Global South Thought series. Why we call it the South? This is the uh, being critical of the um, uh, Eurocentric and the Northern views. So we are very um, happy that uh, Professor Hassan's book is the first of this series. Those that are coming uh, will be uh, super imperialism, and also um, uh, and also uh, along with um, J uh, J for junk economics, the bubble and beyond, and also other books by Professor Hudson. Uh, in this series, we are also going to have uh, Sami Amin's uh, two books on the global south, uh, Wallace Stein's books on the five hundred commentaries. And we are also going to have several books written by our authors on Venezuela uh, today and also on Brazil today. So, uh, so I hope uh, the, uh, you will all be enjoying um, uh, reading these books and also coming for more exchanges uh, with the Global University. So uh, we thank again to uh, uh, Professor Hudson today for his always brilliant talk. 
we thank uh, Radhika and also Pepe for the uh, intuitive um, comments. And we also give a special thanks to Ashley Damon for his always uh, very gentle but very um, a, a persistent ways of um, looking at the test and also trying to um, present uh, the arguments in, in a convincing way. So thanks again to uh, Ashley.